Good evening and welcome to the Star Wars Forum UK podcast. I'm Stuart Skinner, Boba Skinner on the forum, and I'll be your host for the show. This is episode 5, Tim Tim, why aren't you at your post? Joining me as co-host, as per usual on the show, it's the Forum's Morster 79. He's a TIE fighter focus collector as well as being a Star Wars completist. He has leaks with every meal. It's the Welsh wizard, Grant Criddle. Good evening, sir. Love Star Wars. Next up is the forum's CC4RHU. He's an expanded universe fanatic, but whatever you do, don't try selling him a boxed item. Otherwise, you'll hear, I really collect loose. What the hell would I want with that boxed item? It's our northern degenerate. It's Richard Hutchinson. Good evening, Rich. Evening, guys. Next, we have the forum's Mr. Shifter. And he's as shifty as they come. He's not selling his mates out or climbing electrical pylons. He's usually found taking notes from Steve Sansweet's book, ready for the podcast. It's the little gimp, better known as Ben Coomber. Evening, Benji. Good Narbund, the Gates. And finally, we have the Naughty Jedi, our resident market expert. If he's not stalking auction houses, then he's usually sitting in his shed sticking images of Carrie Fisher into his Princess Leia scrapbook. If you ever get a chance to see his diary, you will find a detailed minute-by-minute overview of Carrie Fisher's life. He's no stalker, it's Peter Davis. Good evening, old friend. Sausages. We have another action-packed show for your listening pleasure. Latest acquisitions, events, boom, forum roundup and market sections all return once again. We take a look at some old Star Wars video games in this month's Oddballs, and I was delighted to speak to TK421 fan club founder and president Tim Vakoven, who, although he's from Belgium, speaks far better and clearer English than most of the country, including our very own Geordie Rich. So let's crack on with another show. So, lads, it's great to be back again this evening. I love it when we finally get to a, do a recording session. I get to speak to all my little cherubs. Um, you've become like my second family. Ben and Grant, you're like brothers. And Rich and Pete, you are like mum and dad. It's a lovely little setup. <laughs> so let's see what we've all been purchasing this month. Let's start off with mother then. Pete, what have you been up to? I haven't really got a great deal this month. Um, I guess all I've done really is bought the, uh, the little desert skiff uh, mini rig from Nick Arla White. Uh, which is going to be a present for somebody at their birthday in November. Not for anyone you know, <laughs> but for my friend who I've uh, um, reinvigorated his love of Star Wars collecting. So uh, it's going to be a nice little surprise for him because he's been going on about it for years and years. But that's it for my stuff, really. Grant? Um, absolutely nothing, mate. I haven't collected anything. Mind you, I was. it took me a month to listen to the last podcast, so <laughs> I was busy listening to all 25 hours of the last episode. Enjoy it? Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> Rich, have you been buying anything? Well, I promised myself I wasn't going to buy a thing this month, seeing that I've spent far too much money in the last couple of months. But that didn't last long. What have I got? I have bought a jigsaw. Uh, I heard about it on the Kivecast last episode. It's the first time I've heard of it. It's the one with the Palatoy figures on the front of the box. You've got the Landspeeder and um, Leah's. I should get out the land speed or stand next to the land speed or something like that. 
There's yep. two of them, mine, Rich. There's um, yep. a space one and a desert one. Which one did you get? I got the desert one. Um, Section 8, Andy was selling it. Literally, I was browsing the forum, and his thread popped up. Within, like, 30 seconds, I'd purchased it. He also convinced me to buy another jigsaw. Uh, only paid three quid for the second one. I'm not sure exactly which one that is, but I thought for three quid, you can't go wrong. I've sent about 30 comics over to um, a guy in the States, and he's sending me and trade uh, vintage accessories for the 12-inch figures. So I'm hoping to get the Luke Groplin hook, a Ben lightsaber, Han Solo's medal, and one or two little pieces that I'm missing off um, the Liat action figure. And I've managed to get, and I know it's not vintage, well, I suppose it is. It's the trade paperback of the Star Wars comic book, which is absolutely amazing. And if you don't know what it is, it's the original screenplay of Star Wars before George Lucas um, altered many things, whereby um, like Luke, Sk- Luke Skywalker's a completely different character, and Darth Vader's human, and there's, there's lots of other differences, in, but it's a fantastic comic book. And I'm, Rich, sh- I'm Rich, sure there's Just stop there, Rich. Just stop there. You can't say that's good. That is a dreadful comic book. Because you can't read it. You can't read it because your head's already got all those characters in them. And as you go along, you're going, ah, oh, but, but he's not him, and he looks like him. Luke looks like Han, and Ben looks like Han. It's just, it's just an absolute mess. Oh, I can't believe you like that. Well, yeah, okay, admittedly, you do have to have, like, a higher level of intelligence to separate yourself from the different timelines. But if you if if you read it and appreciate it for what it is, I didn't have any difficulty reading it at all. I've also got um, two of the clips for the Palatoid Destor, and that completes the Palatoid Destor now. Um, so I'm pleased. I'm pleased with that. And if anybody is missing any clips, I'm going to get the guy's name up on the forum now because he's got quite a few to sell, and they're not easy to get a hold of. It's uh, Dinner Squadron 2. So if anybody's missing any Palatoy clips off the desktop, Dinner Squadron 2's got a, a few still to sell. Ben? I've bought myself a little selection of loose, complete figures for my loose, complete run. Six, in fact, all from Empire Strikes Back, with the Cloud Car Pilot, and an Ugnaught, among other things, that I wanted. So that's growing nicely. So I've also got myself a Revenge of the Jedi proof card. Um, it's a black Bespin guard, so nothing too excited. Uh, I'm not going to start collecting these, but I've been after one for a little while just to uh, complement the rest of my collection. I think it's an interesting piece of history and a nice item to have. So yeah, quite pleased with that. It's got a little bit of damage. It's got a little bit of a crease on the top, but I'm more than happy for it. It displays beautifully, so and it's not graded. Yeah, cracking. What about you then, Stuart? Have you bought anything? No, I've generally had quite a quiet month. I've bought about uh, 15 loose figures for my loose run, all from Ian and Chico off the forum. I've started my Sigma collection off after after Grant's section last month. I've got a, um, a Yoda mug and I've got the 3PO picture frame sent over from oh, America. Which I love. A Yoda mug? A Yoda mug, yeah. Oh, that, that's, that's, quite, that's quite something to, uh, to get. Um, there must have been a few people bidding for that. Did you get it off eBay? Yeah, there was, but uh, I obviously wanted it more, so... Uh, Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's good to hear. Uh, has anyone else been doing anything on eBay this month? Maybe Richard, have you been bidding for any items? Well, I was waiting for that to come up, you see, because <laughs> um, we all browse eBay. Um, Grant did a fantastic section on Sigma, Sigma items last month, so I just did a search on eBay to find some Sigma items, and there was there was a Yoda mug in the UK, very reasonable. I think it may have been Grant who I contacted to see if he was buying it, but Grant already had one. 
And then Ben said, oh, you weren't interested in that, Rich. I'll back away, you know, as, as good guys do, as, as friends do. You know, he knew I wanted one, and me, me kids haven't been fed for three weeks, and I'd saved all that money up to, to purchase this Yoda mug. It got down about the last half hour, and, you know, a couple of guys, it looks as though you're going to win that one for a reasonable price. We're, we're going to keep up your auction. Great. I was counting down the time. I think I had to send one of my kids off the hospital to, get, to be put on a drip because they were so malnourished. And then somebody, with about ten seconds to go, Snipers, I was livid, absolutely livid. Um, Who would do such a thing? Who would do such a despicable act? Some total scumbag. Rich, you got to let this go. You got to let it go. Just let it go. Shall, shall we tell them the truth, Rich, about how how sporting I was and I, I stepped out? Go on then. I, I, I seem I've missed this bit. <laughs> you're right. You're right. To be honest with you, it was too low a price. At that price, too, so. too low a price. You couldn't let him. You couldn't let him have Just the deal. Let him have it for that value. So to let Richard try to bump him up on accidentally won it. Yeah. No, to, to be to be fair, what had happened was I knew I knew Stu wanted it. I wanted it, but I've got my limits. I, I, I'm not stupid, so I'm not going to pay too much. So Stu contacted us and said he, he was desperately wanting it, and he agreed that if it went over a certain amount, and I think it was about five pound, five pound fifty, if it went over that amount, I was just going to back off and let Stu have it. So. We've had a little bit of fun about it, but that's what happened. And I think you got it for about £8, £8.50, Stu? £8.50, yeah, that's quite a bargain, yeah. really. Yeah, but apart from the Sigma stuff, I haven't bought a great deal. A couple of EU novels, Sand Sweets, Screen to Collectible Book, and some of the Coca-Cola Cooley Beakers. Do you have them, Grant, as an oddball collector? Uh, which ones? They're like the big, tall, white Cooley. There's 20 in total. Oh, yeah, 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 the ones that came out with... Uh, they're quite early, they're all, st- all new, new hope. Hope images. Uh, yeah, I saw those for sale. Those were all um, on eBay, weren't they, from someone from the forum? Yeah, I bought um, I bought a few just to have a look at them to see whether I wanted to go down the route. But yeah, I quite like the artwork on them, and they're quite reasonably priced. So, yeah, they're, they're really cool. They are. I may mean, uh, take care of them because the plastic can go yellow. So um, if they gleam in white, I, I don't know how to look after them. I've only got one. So, but uh, yeah, beware that they don't go a horrible yellow colour. Well, to be honest, they they arrived in a box. I opened them and looked at them, and I put them back in a box, and I put them in another box, back in storage with everything else. Let's move this on. For for this month's podcast competition, um, I want to give away five loose vintage figures. Now, the five figures are going to be decided right now by the podcast team. The figures would be the figures that most resemble the podcast crew here. So I want us to have a little debate about each person and who each of us think each other looks like. Let's all be sensible, you know. Let's not pick too much on Ben in this and be ridiculous. We know he's funny looking, but let's try to keep it on a, on topic. So let's start off with Grant. So Pete, who do you think Grant most resembles? Oh, Grant. Um, he's either got to be Greedo or C-3PO because he knows everything. Ben, what do you think he looks like? Salacious Crumb for me. Right, Rich? I'm not having that, Ben, because I said Grant looked like Salacious Crumb a couple of months ago. And uh, so you've stole mine. So I'm going to go with Slacious Come. Go back to Ben. He can choose another one. Well, no, we can agree. It's it's no, it's, okay. it's acceptable to agree on things. Yeah, because we are going to all agree on one in the end. I've been actually looking at the figures, and I think Ben actually resembles Clatu. Really? Because we're talking about Grant. Let's not pick on uh, Ben. <laughs> who did, who did I say? Away, did I say look like it? Straight away, we're on to Ben. Everybody <laughs> looks like Clatu to me. I meant Grant looks a bit like Clatu. So uh, Grant, have you got a defence? Who do you think you look like? I'll go. For, I'll go for Greedo. So what? What we're going to agree with here? So Grant can't really decide on his own, can he? Which route are we going down? Salacious Quorum. So it's between. Let's say it's between Greedo and Salacious. Then five of us. There can't be a um. Can't be a tie here, can there? So Rich and Ben, you're both going for Salacious Crumb, yeah. Pete, you're going for Greedo. Yeah. Grant. Salacious. 
there you go then. He's already got three. So Salacious Crumb for uh, for Grant. That's Grant. His name is Grant. <laughs> yeah, he's really struggling with the names tonight. Right. The Welsh one, yeah. The Welsh bloke, the greedo-looking one. Right. So let's go for Ben then. Pete, who do you think Ben looks like? Probably an ugnaught. Uh, Rich, Droopy McCool. Wait, there's coming. Grant. 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 <laughs> um, Max Rebo. Actually, I thought he looked like um, um, Prumface when I was looking at the figures. Oh, yeah. um, headwise. So, Ben, who do you think you look like? Because you've got four different different options there. For me, I've, I've been often mistaken for uh, Lando Calrissian in the past. We're like two peas in a pod. Um, slimy, slimy double-crossing nerf-herder. Well, I think it's probably because of our um, our dark-skinned roots that, uh, that we get compared so similarly so much of the time. And uh, my awesome afro as well. Well, I know about the hair on top of your head there, not not here in other places. I think we can all agree to throw out Lando, can't we? We've got Droopy, Rebo, Pruneface and Ugnot. Who else would you throw out, Rich, if you had to throw out one right now? I would throw out Rebo because he's, he's not blue and I haven't seen him in a nap. Pete, which one would you throw out? Uh, anything Richard says, basically. Actually, yeah, he does look a bit like Droopy before, and I can imagine they're the underpants that Ben wears as well. Uh, OK, OK, let's have a vote then. Rich? Droopy. Droopy. Pete? Okay. We're all going to stick with it. Grant? Okay. I'm going to say Droopy. So, Ben, you've got to decide between Droopy and Ugnaught. Lando, General Pilot. Do you think that Ben was actually set on, on Lando? I mean, he, was he sitting there dreaming, going, I look so much like Lando, it's amazing, and dreaming of all the cool chicks that are going to come after him because he looks like Lando, and then realises, we've spoiled his dreams. We've ruined his dreams. That sounds yeah, very Droopy bet. to me, yeah. Yeah, we're going on Droopy. Right, let's move on to Pete. And uh, let's have Rich first. Gamorian God. That's quite cool. Bon? Bib Fortuna. What? What? Yeah, but you like, you know, you like Pervin on Leia. That's true. That is true. But you could have gone down the Jabba route. I was thinking Jabba, yeah. That's massively offensive. Uh, ben? I'm going to go Rich again, I think. I think the Gamorian Guard's a good shout. See, I was going to go with the Rancor Keeper. Yeah, Rancor Keeper. Yeah, Pete, what, what, who do you think? I, I, I like the Rancor Keeper. I think that's more, that's very apt. So ah, yes, but we've already established we don't get to choose. So at the moment, we've got two for Rancor and two for the Gamorreans. So that means Grant must have the uh, deciding vote. Uh, Rancor Keeper. Yay! Woo-hoo. Right, so let's move on to Rich and uh, Grant. Ah, he's massively imperial, but at the same time has a wonderful sense of humour, like Admiral Akbar. So I'm going to go for imperial dignitary. <laughs> right, Pete? Well, see, he's northern. So, being northern means you're a bit dull and grey. And being dull and grey can only give you one category answer, which is Anakin Skywalker, because he's dull and grey and is a large piece of plastic, really, that no one wants. Ben? Yeah, I've been thinking about this, and I think Rich exhibits several qualities similar to Walrus Man, um, in so much as that I can't understand a noise that comes out of either of them. Neither of it makes sense. And the thing around his mouth. What, the bum? The bum on his face? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see the similarity there. Yeah, I can. It's like his dent in his chin, isn't it, that he's got? You're very similar, actually. I- I've gone for Hammerhead. I think um, the way he stands and those funny, awkward arms. Actually, you're right. That That is a good call. Those arms, they go all over the place, don't they? It's like an octopus with only two arms. thing with um, Rich and Walrus Man in that neither of them can handle their drink particularly very well, either. I mean, was it two pints and he was flailing? Amazing. You're, you're right, actually, Ben. And, and Rich is quite armless, isn't he? <laughs> Rich, who do you consider yourself to be like? Right. Now, I'm sure the question was, who do you resemble? Because we've now went off it to something else, because Pete sort of resembles a bank or keeper. 
Grant resembles Salacious Crumb, Ben Doobie. So we've gone on to something different now, but I, I agree with what Grant was saying at first. I'm definitely Imperial, definitely. I'm going to go with the Death Squad Commander or, or something like General Viaz or something like that. You're, you're a hoot, Rich. Yeah, I am. Hammerhead. Pete? So I'm going to stick with Anakin, so stuff you all. Right, well, I'm going to stick with Hammerhead. So, Rich, unless you pick either Warus Man or Anakin, you're Hammerhead. Which isn't too bad, really. I've seen you in that outfit. It's your disco outfit, isn't it? It, it works. It works. You can, you, you can see that figure out on the town in Newcastle. In fairness, Pete, that's probably a bit much for the old Geordie, Geordie people. I've seen I've been up there. They don't wear that much clothes. What? I'm sticking with my desk squad. You're Hammerhead, then. Right, and finally me. If I just put myself straight down as Luke Bespin in those nice clothes, all happy with that? Um, uh, not really, not really. I, I, I'm going to have to go back to Ognaught. That's not particularly nice, Grant, really. That's quite nice about you. Pete? Uh, well, I always saw you as a, a little red shiny snaggletooth. You look, you look like a little red shiny snaggletooth with a little... little yeah, snaggletooth. Ben? I think Romba. Romba's the most appropriate... Uh, Hairy little, uh, hairy little creature with a paunch. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Are you saying I'm a cuddly little Ewok, Ben? That's such a good call, Ben, to be honest with you. I haven't thought yeah. about that. Rolder, definitely. And what's it, with, what's it with the Ewok thing? It's an Ewok. I keep hearing you talking about Ewoks. There's no R. Ewok. It's like, like, the, like the wok you cook with. Actually, I just realised Wicket's probably more appropriate for you. Because <laughs> he's a bit more little. <laughs> because he's a bit more little and he's a bit more plentiful as well. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll change it to Wicket, I think. Rich? I, I did think of an Ewok at first, especially one, one of those ones with the, with the daft headdresses. But I'm going to say Sai Snootles. Both a bit sexy and sassy. Uh, I don't find Sai Snootles that sexy or sassy, actually. But I believe you. Rubbish, you're from the north, of course you do. Right then, boys, so we're all agreed with Luke Bespin? No. Wicket Warwick? Right, Wicket for Ben. Pete? I've got to go for Wicket, I think. Grant? Wicket. Rich? Size Snootles. Right, so that is the five figures then. Salacious Crumb, Droopy McCall, the Rancor Keeper, Hammerhead and Wicket. So to win this month's prize, all you need to do is go onto our competition thread, of which I'll post up when the podcast is released, and then state which figure you most look like, and it would be good to have a photo of yourself so we can all agree. Everyone, it's all a bit of fun. Everyone who gets involved will be put into the draw. So an easy one to enter this month. And of course, we had a competition last month. Grant was uh, hosting this one. Grant, can you tell us a bit more about it and who's won it? Uh, yes, mate. It was for a Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith shot glasses. Two shot glasses come with it. One is a clone trooper and one is Yoda, which makes me think, why are they making shot glasses? And what's next? Stormtrooper ashtrays and Jabba bongs. Anyway, we have a winner, and the idea was to put a review on iTunes, so big thank you to everyone who has given us a review. And the winner of this week's competition was Andy Spoons. So Andy, if you can PM me your address, I'll make sure I'll get this out to you, or maybe uh, we can meet up sometime and I'll hand it over to you. But big thanks for everyone who, uh, who gave us a review. So let's move on then to Ben with his latest acquisitions section. The year 
year is 1978, and Palatoy bring you Star Wars. Here on Death Star, Ben Kenobi combats the awesome power of Darth Vader, while Han and Leia battle for their lives in the trash compactor. Luke evades the stormtroopers with R2, D2, and C3PO, but can he escape in the X-Wing fighter? Only you will know. Only you can create your own Star Wars. Death Star, vehicles, figures, all sold separately. May the Force be with you. What is thy bidding, my master? Learn to know the dark side of the force and you will achieve a power greater than any Jedi. The dark side of the force. So this month, for the latest acquisitions, I've decided to make uh, a couple of changes to the format of the section, um, see how we get on, but any feedback about it, please post in the thread. I'm going to start with a bit of a general roundup, almost like a latest news, with just a few a few bits and bobs that have been going on, and then I've picked a couple of items to concentrate more on. So we'll see how this works, and uh, give it a go. So this month, I've noticed a couple of Palatoy Ugnaughts have appeared on the latest acquisitions thread. Uh, Sith Lord WS6 picked one up, and Kazavar picked one up as well. They're both Palatoy, and they're both Empire Strikes Back. They're both 41 cards. The interesting thing about these is that Palatoy prices have been absolutely through the roof recently, and I think both of these slipped under the radar a little bit on eBay. Sith Lord WS61, he picked up for £158, and Kazavars was £80. When you look at what the cost has been recently of certain Palatoy items, these, I think, represent pretty good bargains and just go to show that if you look around, if you do a bit of uh, bit of shopping, put in a bit of hard graph, then you can pick these, ba- these uh, bargains up. Okay, I just wanted to do a quick roundtable to see whether everyone counts the purple schmuck Orgnor as a variation or not. Rich? No way. Not since that carded figure appeared where you had the half purple, half blue smock. I believe there's possibly an Australian purple smock. Has that been proven to be a variation or is it still under debate? I don't know. You're the variation boy. Yeah, there's, there's possibly... I'll have to do some more research on this. I'm, I'm digging in the back of my memory here. But there's possibly an Australian version that's been a bit debated. But the the general ones that we see in this country and in America are not variations. It's just dis- discoloration. And if you're going to class that as a variation, then you're going to have to class the green limbs, chewy as a variation. What were you, Stu? I, I would have done until, like Rich just said, I would have done up to recently when there's been evidence saying that it's not original and it's... I don't really know what they're saying, to be honest. They, they say it's discolouring. Yeah, fading. Or UV yeah, exactly. Exactly. Then, so that. But then, saying that, if it looks purple. Look quite nice standing next to the other one, wouldn't it? Yeah, Ben. I don't class it as a variation for the same reasons, but there is an interesting sort of thing you can consider off this, and that is, I do believe it's down to fading, and whether that's UV light or whether that's age, you're never really going to prove because if it's if it's either, they'll fade in the bu- bubble as well as outside of the bubble. But here's something to consider, and and this is very spurious when it comes to variations, but it's conceivable that a batch of them may have been made with uh, capes or smocks of a certain material and a certain paint and others that have faded 
may have been made of a slightly different material or a slightly different paint. So it could be a means of ascertaining where it was made or where it came from or which particular batch it was from, but I don't think it's a variation in the true sense of the word. What about you, Pete? If, if, with any manufacturing, if, uh, if stuff was made and sourced locally to the manufacture areas, then um, there's always going to be some kind of variation in colour and material quality. So um, I'd imagine you'd probably find it, it, it's something to do with material that was sourced from a certain place. I'd, I'd be amazed that, that it's actually an actual variation rather than just sort of variation in, in sourcing. I, I can't see any, any difference, really. What do you think, Grant? Um, I'm old school, so it's a variation for me, buddy. Oh, whether, it's UV, whether it's UV light, I don't care. It's purple. There's a blue one. There's a purple one. DJ Big Hair's picked up a Sears free pack. It's a marvel how he's managed to pick this up in between flooding eBay with magnets. These three packs are a little bit different to the other three packs that we've spoken about before on podcasts. These particular ones are basically baggies boxed in a cardboard box. So his is from 1978. So it's one of the earliest three packs that was available. Got a Luke Barn Boy, a Death Squad Commander and a Han Solo plus a little catalogue. This was available in the Sears end of year catalogue. It's basically a way of selling figures cheaply without having to package them and there's quite a few of these around. In that particular year, 1978, they released six different types of combinations. So it's quite an unusual item. Uh, if you're a baggy collector or if you're into these, these three pack mailers, it's, uh, it's quite a cool thing to pick up. Okay, so another thing that I've noticed that a few have cropped up recently on latest acquisitions are Tuscuda, Return of the Jedi cards, mint on cards. Rob P. Marsh has picked up a Weequay and a Maydean, and the Force UK has picked up a Squidhead. These are quite interesting, these cards. They're Japanese, and they're one of three Japanese licensees. You had Takara, who had the license for the original Star Wars figures. We've spoken about Takara before. And the license then passed over to Poppy, who are a subsidiary company of Bandai, and they released a set of Empire Strikes Back figures. If you ever get a chance to see one of these, and I'm sure one will crop up sooner or later, but they're, they're completely unique. They're in very small boxes, and the packaging looks absolutely mad. So we'll talk about those hopefully another time. And then finally... The license for Return of the Jedi was passed over to a company called Scuda. This was a Japanese company that actually merged with Kenner in 1984 and released 20 plus one of the Kenner Return of the Jedi figures. The plus one was Darth Vader, which randomly got picked out and ended up in there as well, plus a Yoda C-3PO and an R2. So they're identical to the Kenner cards, but they've got the large Tuscuda sticker on the back, which takes up the sort of bottom third of the card. And the sticker looks really cool. It's obviously all in Japanese, but the Return of the Jedi logo that they used was the same one as the movie poster. So it's more of the actual movie poster style on the back. It's in the red writing and it looks really, really nice. And these guys were also released, and I've not seen one, but... There was a Mitsubishi promotion, and you can actually buy these with a Mitsubishi sticker on the front, where they were sort of given away in Mitsubishi dealers as part of a promotion. And the rarest Tuscuda cards actually came shrink-wrapped with Power of the Force coins, and they're generally the mail-away Power of the Force coins. But these are just standard Tuscuda cards. They're pretty cool to see. I think they're a legitimate foreign variant as well, and it just seems to be that a few people have been hunting these down this month. So that rounds up the general news uh, on the latest acquisitions thread. I'll carry on urging people to 
keep posting their latest acquisitions because obviously that's the thread that we use to, to make this section and the more you post the more it gives us to discuss and I've learned a lot about some really cool items wouldn't have uh, even known existed until I started doing this and looking at that thread okay moving on so there's a couple of items that have appeared this month that I'd like to discuss in greater detail. These are interesting items. They all focus around concept artwork. So the first of these items is Bram's Power of the Force concept art. Basically, I've, I've been lucky enough, I haven't seen his new one, but I've been lucky enough to see his other two uh, Power of the Force concept art pieces in person. So I know a little bit about the story behind these. And that is when they were designing a new logo for the Power of the Force range, when they were designing a new logo for the Power of the Force range, they commissioned a company called LPK to design a number of different logos and they would then decide which one they preferred or which one they thought was the best. So Power of the Force as a concept was born out of various logos and styles. So the one that um, Bram's got, it, it's actually not Power of the Force, it's, it's Star Wars The Space Saga. So that was a name that they would have been experimenting with at the time. It's cardboard artwork as opposed to the generally the Power of the Force logo, concept logos that they find are mounted onto what's called foam board. This foam board, they're, they're sort of generally small logos on this foam board, but this is actually a whole mock-up of a card back. And what they've done is they've, it's, it's what's called cut and paste artwork. So they've actually drawn the new logo, the Star Wars Space Saga logo by hand. And you can actually see the close-up pictures, the, the pencil work and the pen work that's gone into it. They've cut it out, they've designed and printed the card back design, and they've stuck the new logo onto the card back. You're kind of saying it as like an incredulous thing. That's how artwork would have been done in the 80s, because there'd be no high-power computers to knock this stuff out. So pretty much all artwork for any print and design would have been done by hand. I, I believe the other, certainly the other two that Bram's got, are, are actually printed examples so this is this is a little bit different to the the Power of the Force concept logos that are known to exist, the ones mounted on foam board, because this is actually a cut and paste mock up of of a card back, uh, and that's just what I was trying to get across there. Brown's actually got two others of these Power of the Force concept logos. Um, they're both the Force Forever, which was another name that was going to be given to Power of the Force range before the Power of the Force range was actually devised, and they actually decided that they were going to go with that. So these guys would have all been presented to uh, Kenner employees. These would have been what they discussed in the boardroom and made the final decision on, on what the Power of the Force artwork was going to be. Overall, I think what they went for in the end was was the, the right choice. I think any, anyone with a design, even half design knowledge, would turn those away. I think they're dreadful. I mean, if you look on the Star Wars Force Forever, the sort of rounded one, the second one of Bram's pictures, the way the, the R and the S curve off and round are absolutely just, it just looks wrong. It looks, it looks distorted and wrong. So for me, uh, I'm glad they stuck with what they did. I uh, love the fact that they found these bits of artwork just f amazing. When I look at them, the, the funny thing is, because you become familiar with the one that they've actually used, and that's the one you associate it with, I look at the others and they're just so alien because yeah. I'm not used to seeing them. They're, I've associated the one that, that actually got there in the end as the one that's on there. Uh, and I think the others just look so weird and wacky that you couldn't ever imagine them being on, on the card. It's, it's not keeping with the brand at all. I mean, I mean, the brand of Star Wars was pretty strong. It had a very simple logo drawn in a rather odd font. But, it, I mean, it was it was re it reasonably stayed together, though, even even those early days when things were being redesigned quickly. I mean, apart from that sort of uh, reflective desert in, in, in some of the parts of the, the logo on various bits and pieces, 
it, it, it was reasonably consistent um, in consideration for, for the amount of licensing they had, which they probably didn't didn't keep a great deal of tabs on sometimes. Which I mean, I mean now it's it's tight as anything. You know, you can't get away with anything. But in those days, it would have been a little bit looser. People making their own stuff, making their own variants. But um, yeah, I just 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 from a brand perspective, those are you know pretty poor to be fair. It's funny when you look at the actual branding of the logo on the previous cards you've got your Star Wars cards which are unique and that was obviously the first design and then they went to the Empire Strikes Back the Empire Strikes Back logo they seem to almost repeat that with Return of the Jedi it was like this is now the brand this is what it looks like and you see that with the foreign cards as well some of the earlier foreign logos are completely different completely out there but then generally by Empire Strikes Back they're all sort of pulled into line and even the Meccano and the Pock, uh, the Lily Leddy, they all sort of follow that same format with the font crunched up in the in the box at the top. And when they got to this, they obviously just completely went, right, we've got to redesign everything. It's got to be completely different, completely out there. That's that's what they seem to have done with these with these logos, just pick something that people wouldn't have associated with the brand. And, and tried out these new ideas, maybe to promote the line a bit. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the same with same with any mass marketing. Um, and I, I guess as Lucasfilm were developing their their, their entire company, uh, the bigger they got, you know, I mean, it started from a film base, and then, then George Lucas, etc., etc. Um, you would have had to have had some kind of brand manager, marketing manager, would have got hold of this and looked at the whole range of stuff and said, "This is, yeah, we have to bring this in." Because otherwise it would get out of hand. I mean, it's. I mean, it is. If you look at this stuff, it is reasonably consistent. I mean, like, like you said, the the, the Return of the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back logos on some of the cards do tend to waver a little bit, and then they get bought in line, and it's a real strong branding. I mean, the, the, the only time it actually, actually goes off on one is the Star Wars Power Force brand itself. You know, with the lightsaber down the middle. I mean, that's the only time it really goes off on one. It's strange that whereas a lot of the other product lines went to the uh, the Star Wars logo that we know now that we're all familiar with. You know, with the the two tier with the star at the top, the walls at the bottom, and you've got sort of like, you know, you know, it's the same logo that you see on, even on the modern toys, or, you know, basically all Star Wars memorabilia now carries the same logo. And in the late late run up to, you know, like 1983, 1984, 1985, a lot of the oddball items went back to this, this same text, the same logo. It just seems strange that the, the figures went off on their own, didn't uniform with the rest of the uh, the stuff that was being sold at that time. It just seems strange that if you had, like, the soaps and everything come under the same logo, and the stuff that came after, like the West End games in 1987, all had the same logo. It just seems strange that these figures just went off on their own little tangent there. And it's a logo that's never been used again, is it? I think one thing's for sure, though, is uh, what they did back in 1985 is far superior to the majority of the uh, action figure logos that they've done since. I agree with that, yeah. I think the uh, the original ones are, are far more iconic than the stuff that they've that they've done since, with the exception obviously of the vintage line, which is is paying homage to that. So yeah, a lot of it just looks like the mass-produced hack, doesn't it? People uh, who have been lucky enough to pick up some nice pre-production artwork in the past month or so have been last month's interview guest, and that's Sean Kemple. Now he's picked up a couple of examples, and the first one being a photo slide featuring his uh, favourite character, Luke Jedi. Now, these photo slides have come from basically a guy called Kim Simmons, who is now known amongst the hobby as the man who shot Luke Skywalker. Now, he was a photographer who basically got employed by a guy called Roy Frankenfield in 1981. And Roy Frankenfield was the photographer and owner of the 
photography gallery who had been commissioned to basically photograph the Star Wars figure line and the Star Wars toy line. So all the all the figures you see, all the pictures you see, sorry, of the figures and the vehicles, obviously particularly the vehicles on the box, but also the figures on the back and in catalogues and things like that, were all shot by his studio. So Kim Simmons joined in '81 more or less took over photography of these toys from Empire Strikes Back onwards, and eventually Roy retired and Kim bought the business. In buying the business, he found two trash cans full of negatives and transparencies, which were original photos that had been taken of the figure lines and of the vehicles. And luckily, he preserved all of this history. Star Wars Galaxy magazine in the 1980s coined the name The Man Who Shot Luke Skywalker, and they were interviewing him. As people became more and more interested in this sort of thing, more and more of his work was released to be available for collectors. And this particular photo slide is a slide of an original photo taken and used in some respect for either packaging, perhaps, or for promotional uses. Now, I've had a look at it. It's uh, Luke Jedi with a blue saber, and it's Luke alone. So the actual Luke Skywalker figure is possibly a pre-production figure. I don't know. Quite often they were. I've spoken a little bit with Sean about this particular one because we're actually unsure of what this would have been used for. Now, it's not the photograph from the back of the card. Uh, You can see that by comparing it. The chances are it would have come from maybe a catalogue or maybe um, some sort of advertising material, one of the the free catalogues or even a trade catalogue, a Christmas catalogue, something like that, from one of the department stores. They were all done by this by this one studio by Kim Simmons. It's dated November nineteen eighty two and generally these photo slides also had a transparency that was the same and maybe even a negative, although the negatives were hung on to by the by the photographers in general and the negatives tend to deteriorate a little bit. So it's a unique piece, although it could have been one of maybe three or four photos were chosen after a photo shoot with any given figure. So I don't know what you guys thought of this when you saw it. I'm a little confused about these things, Ben. Are these actually like vintage items or are they something that's there's something that's been produced after for using vintage photographs? These are actually vintage items. The photo slides and the transparencies are the actual photos the slides that were produced are the photos that were taken at the time rather than modern reproductions. Although if you go to his website, Kim Simmons' website you can actually buy modern modern prints of his original artwork if there's anything in particular that you like and he's got it. And if you haven't had a look at his website, it's well worth a look because there's some really, really cool stuff on there. But this particular one, uh, so it's dated November 82, which would have been when it would have been, I imagine, produced. And this is the actual original vintage item. So this is this is quite unique. Vintage 92 photo slide for Luke Skywalker in the Jedi outfit, which is not going to be out for another couple of months. Uh, 1982, yeah. That's amazing. That's where I got a bit confused, Ben, uh, because the... What was that website? Is it the man who shot Luke Skywalker? Yeah, that's what it's called. Yeah, because they're selling, like, modern prints on there, and it kind of confused me where these prints were coming from. But, wow, a slide from Canon from back in the day, that's that's phenomenal. I'd love to have one of those. The chances are, with the actual figure, would have possibly been... And it's a bit difficult to see, but it would have been a first shot maybe or a kit bashed uh, or a pre-production figure that was given to the photography studio to get the photos ready for the box art or the back art or the catalogue. Yeah. So, yeah, this is uh, this is a proper piece of the 
of the photography history and, and certainly the part of the toy line that a lot of people don't necessarily look at as, as part of the pre-production process. That's amazing. You've got, um, on this man who shot Luke Skywalker, the pictures that he's got there, he's even got like Phantom Menace stuff. Are these actual ones that he's done since that time or are these ones that go back in the day? Because a lot of them look like the ones from the, the box art itself. What he did was he digitised all of his original material that he had left. So although he sold some of the original photo slides and transparencies, that the catalogue was digitised and stored on computer before that happened. So he'll have pictures that he took back in the 80s of, say, the ATAP box art or the Millennium Falcon box art, and because this one studio did it all, everything came through these two guys, and he will actually do a modern print of that for you if, if that's your thing. So if you're a focus collector, you can get a modern print of the of the original digitized picture of the of the box art just for your own your own enjoyment but this actual slide is an original slide from back in the day and the other thing that um, you've hit on there is the studio actually carried on photographing for Kenner up until about 2000 I think somebody might correct me on on this but he's got quite a few bits of power of the force stuff that he also did the pictures for so he carried on, did the vintage stuff, carried on photographing for Kenner and ended up doing the modern stuff as well. So wow. there's quite a cool historical link there from both ranges. Yeah, some of this stuff is awesome. All right, definitely going to check that out, man. Yeah, it's worth looking at. Some of the prints he does well. If you're, yeah, if you say if you're a focus collector, there's, you know, some of the original stuff is really, really cool. Yeah, I've just seen one I'd really like to buy, actually. So another item that Sean's picked up recently is a transparency. When you're talking about the photo slides, I was also talking about transparencies. And these were ways of the artwork being stored, basically. So they'd, they'd have prints, but they'd also have the artwork on these, these transparent sheets, which meant they were very easy to reproduce. They could re- also reproduce them onto other things. So they could put them onto boxes or into catalogues where they had the, just the artwork on the transparency. It made it very easy. So what he's picked up is a transparency of the original artwork from the Return of the Jedi vinyl carrying case. He's picked up an early version because the Luke Skywalker that he's got on his version has got a blue saber. And if you actually look at that and you have a look at the produced, finally produced case, you'll notice that somewhere along the line they've changed the colour of the Luke Skywalker saber to green. And the Star Wars collector's item has got a picture of this particular piece of artwork with the green saber. So whether it was changed or whether another version was printed and then changed, we don't really know. But they do exist with both a blue saber and a green saber. The Return of the Jedi case itself was not really very common because it was quite a short run. Done in 1983 and then the C-3PO case was produced pretty quickly after the, the gold C-3PO case. And that was really pushed. So that actual Return of the Jedi case didn't have a very long, very long shelf life. Artwork on this one would have been done by non-Kenner employees. So they actually paid people to do the artwork. And as such, there's no signature on them. So I don't actually know who, who drew these. Or in, in trying to do my research, I found it very difficult to find who'd actually drawn these things. But this is, uh, as I say, another cool item. It's got no logo on it. It's just got a gap in the middle. And the idea behind that was they would have a transparency of the logo that they would literally just drop in and then they'd reproduce the entire piece from that. So I don't know if you guys have seen this or what you think of it. Where do people get these wonderful items from? You know, I, I get erasers. That's what I get. I don't get anything like this. 
Well, I'm led to believe that these particular items came via a guy called Tom Nyheisel, who I'd not heard of until I did a bit of research, but uh, he was an ex-Kenner employee. Maybe we should contact him and get some awesome stuff. I think he's been done to death. From what I could read about him, he was an ex-Kenner employee who worked for about 10, 12 years, something like that. But he was also into Star Wars. I think he started in 1982 or something like that, 1982, 1983, around then. But he was a Star Wars fan first and foremost, so he not only was part of the development working for the company, he was also, as a collector, managed to pick things up off people, so he'd get given things that people didn't want or you know, didn't didn't particularly keep. Uh, things like chromalins and proof cards and wax mouldings and things like that. Everybody, from what I, again, from what I can read, and I'm sure a lot of the American guys actually know this chap, but he was where people who didn't want stuff sort of knew him as the guy that also collected the Star Wars stuff, so he ended up with loads and loads of this material that he was collecting himself and eventually when he decided to start letting pieces go or sell sell stuff on to people i think a large amount of the prototype stuff that's available actually came from him wow do you know what just one of those pieces would be a descendant of my collection that's for sure but by all accounts he had garages full of the stuff literally he was taking carloads of it from kenner because they were saying you either take it or or throw it or we throw it away an incredible collection of, of stuff with all the provenance as well to go with it. Yeah, amazing. Can I have, can I have one of those things? I don't care what it is. Everything is proceeding as I have foreseen. <laughs> <laughs> I find your lack of faith disturbing. GW Acrylic. Carded, loose, foreign and mail away. For the security, protection and display needs of your Star Wars collectibles. Facebook, GW Acrylic or contact them at info at gwacrylic.co.uk Right, I want to give a huge warm welcome to this month's interviewee, Tim Vakoven. Tim is a huge Star Wars enthusiast. He's the president and co-founder of TK421, the Belgian fan club. He regularly contributes to StarWars.com and has previously also contributed to Star Wars Insider. Tim is also a bureaucrat for Yodapedia and has written four character backstories. Uh, quite a resume. Welcome, Tim. Hello. I hope all that information was correct. It was perfect. Good, good. Good start, then. You go under the username, now I might get this wrong, I might well butcher this road, uh, word, um, you go under the username Sompitale? Sompitale, yes. Right, what does that mean? Well, Sompitale is uh, actually a Hutties, it's Hutties and it means it's too late, and when Han encounters Greedo in the cantina, first thing he says, well, one of the things he says to Han Solo is Sompitale. Yep, now you've said that, it's clicked something in me, but when I was reading it I was thinking, nah, it's got to be, got to be a... A Dutch word or Flemish or something that is a. <laughs> well, it may sound like one, but it's actually yeah. Well, it's hard. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Right. I noticed yesterday on Facebook that you stated you just started reading the new Star Wars novel, A New Dawn. Yeah. Um. I believe this is the first new canon material. 
Well, not actually the first, because there have been some youth novels about rebels, oh. and some the shorts, some of the the recent short stories in Star Wars Insider all also count as rebels uh, as a new canon. But this is actually the, well the first true, uh, yeah, new novel. So, without giving away too many spoilers, can you tell us what the premise of the book is and whether the early chapters that you've read are any good? And that's assuming you've started reading it. Yeah, I've, I've begun reading it, and there's one chapter that's really, uh, that was, I found was really cool because it, it harkens back to the prequels, sort of a flashback from the prequels. And the book basically sets the premise of Rebels, and it will tell the story of how Hera, Sandula, and Kane and Jarrus met. And how Hera will uh, persuade uh, Kanan to use his skills for good and not in the life that he has been living ever since uh, Order 66 happened. So that's basically what the book is all about. But uh, yeah, it's just a side note that we have to realize now with the new canon in the way, well, how it was before when, when we read books or comics, there were always new and interesting characters. But you also knew that those characters were limited to appear in Expanded Universe. They were going to appear in books, and perhaps they were going to be used later in, in comics or in another novel. Now with the new canon, an important character in, in a novel, he or she, or she could, could perhaps uh, appear in, in, in Rebels or even in one of the movies. So nothing that you read can be taken for granted because there might be an underlying... Uh, importance about a character that we don't know yet. So, is it well written? Is it easy to read? Yeah, John Jackson Miller has written some great books before, like Kenobi, which was released last year, which was an excellent book. He also wrote the uh, Knights of the Old Republic comics, the Knight Errant comics, and the, the uh, novel about it. So, he's, he's a very good writer. So, yeah, for the moment, I really like it. Wonderful. I look forward to seeing your uh, full book review on your site once you're uh you're finished. Yeah. <laughs> right, so let's let's go back then to the start then and uh, go back to your childhood and your first memories of Star Wars when you first saw it and uh, maybe your first interaction with the toys. Well, it's funny because I don't remember uh, actually seeing the movie for the first time. My parents took me to see both A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. Must yeah, surely must have been a rerun of A New Hope. And the only thing I remember, because I was just five years old, it was in 1981, and the only thing I remember is waiting in the lobby and seeing the photos of the Empire Strikes Back Yeah, this being displayed. It's something the younger listeners will not remember or will just not know, because, uh, yeah, in our days, uh, every picture was accompanied by a lot of press photos, which were hung up in the, in the lobby of the theaters. And one of the photos I remember being displayed was Luke on his downtown. And that's basically one of my earliest uh, Star Wars memories. Because I, I don't really remember anything from the screening of, that, of, those, of the movies. I, I do remember watching Return of the Jedi. The first two, I don't, I don't remember seeing them at that moment. Of course, I saw them, but uh, yeah, it's, it's blanked out. Um, growing up in Belgium, was Star Wars... Everywhere was it a big, big thing? Like over here, it was you know the toys are everywhere, biggest well, thing, biggest thing in the country. But uh, was it the same over there? Well, Belgium is is of course a lot smaller than the UK. Star Wars has never been well. It's it has been popular here, but it has never been as popular as in the US or in the UK. 
But when I grew up, the boys uh, either had uh, Star Wars toys or they had Masters of the Universe toys. So in the beginning, certainly in the beginning of the 80s, Star Wars was, uh, yeah, the most popular toys, the boy, most popular uh, toys for, for boys, yeah. So were the, were the toys readily available over there? You had quite a big selection, did you? It was a Compared to now, we had a large selection of toys in Belgium, but uh, I, I only found out later, uh, in the 90s, that a lot of toys were never available in Belgium. Uh, like the land speeder and a lot of the play sets were never really uh, available. But we did get all the figures, including, of course, the yak face, and also including some of, some of the figures from the Empire Strikes Back that haven't been released in France. So we did get them all. And what also happened from time to time is that some, uh, some of the shops on our, on our coast, they sometimes imported items from, from the UK. Uh, that weren't normally available in Belgium. So if you were lucky, you could uh, sometimes grab one of those uh, items at the Belgian coast. Who distributed the figures in Belgium? It was Clipper. Clipper. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah. For the Benelux. Yeah. Um, regarding the films, were, were they released in, um, in Dutch or Flemish? or? No, thanks heavens. They weren't. <laughs> no. It was just uh, just English as they should be released everywhere in the world. <laughs> yeah, I was going to wonder, I was just about to say, what was the... Uh, uh, if they were in those foreign languages, were they dubbed badly? But, uh, no, fla- I mean, in, in, in the Walloon area, you know, uh, the part in Belgium where they speak French, they watch the French dub, but uh, in the Dutch area in Flanders, we only watch the uh, original versions, but in the last couple of decades, more and more movies are dubbed, but... Uh, these movies are still more directly towards towards children. I mean, when I grew up, a Disney movie was never dubbed. Nowadays, you can watch every Disney movie in a Dutch version, and even the Harry Potter movies were dubbed in Dutch. And yeah, I mean, uh, I'd rather choose to appear before the Spanish Inquisition, even if you don't expect them. But uh, I'd rather choose to go before the Spanish Inquisition than listening to one of the... Dutch Harry Potter movies. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're right, actually. When you buy a Disney DVD now, it's got like you can choose about fifty different languages, can't you? To yeah, and well, I wasn't able to 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 understand English when I was a child, but yeah, my father just told me the important things that happened, and if you got your wits along with you in the theater, it's not that difficult to find out what happening what's happening in a Disney movie. No, even if you can't understand the lines. Right. So then. The collecting, um, I noticed that on one of your uh, pages where it says that uh, you started collecting in 1981, but really got heavily into it in 1988. What was it that happened around 88 that made you your collecting really push on? After I watched the movie, my parents bought me four figures, and I played with them the entire afternoon. Can you, can you remember which four? Yeah, it's Han Bespin, Chewbacca, Obi-Wan, and the Sand People. Oh, nice. Yep. And I played the entire afternoon with them in a Fisher Ply- in a, in a playset from Sesame Street from Fisher Price. It had a lot of trap doors and uh, conveyor belts. And since I uh, played with them the whole entire afternoon, they decided to get me more. In the 80s, I, I, I have mentioned it before, you had Star Wars and you had Masters of the Universe. Around It, it was 1983 that uh, Masters of the Universe really became popular. It was the first time the figures were available in Belgium. And, well, actually, it was the time that 
Star Wars had reached its high point because the vehicles from Return of the Jedi were also released at that time. So Star Wars had reached its high point and Master of the Universe was really coming up. And I also became a big fan of Masters of the Universe because it was, it's a wonderful toy line. Uh, I'm still a fan of the, of the series. And it had, well, I was, I was, it was all, always some, a little bit of, amb- of an ambiguity between Star Wars or He-Man. Because if I'm a fan of something, I need to do it seriously. <laughs> if I watch a movie or watch a book, I usually go and, and find out more about it. I want to know more about the characters. I want to, more, I want to know more about what's happening. Then what happened in 1988, I was still facing that ambiguity. Well, I loved both Star Wars or He-Man, but I somehow felt I had to choose one of them. I mean, I could love both, but I couldn't love them equally as as much. And then I, I, yeah, in 1988, both He-Man and Star Wars had died out. He-Man's, yeah, had been popular for, like, say, three or four years, but that also started to die out. And in 1988, I somehow realized that uh, Star Wars had more potential and that there was a lot more about Star Wars than just a toy line. Because back at that moment, while Star Wars had never been released on VHS, so the memories of the movies were something, yeah, I, I didn't really remember the movies that much. I was a fan because of, of Star Wars because of the toys, most of the, mostly. But uh, I did realize that Star Wars was more than just a toy line, which basically He-Man was. And then I started to find everything that was possible about Star Wars, comics, books, yeah. everything that was available. A lot of it, wasn't there, when you start looking? Yeah, back at the time, well, it was rather easy because there wasn't anything. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was probably because I also didn't really know where to look, but I, ca- but I remember going to Brussels with my parents in some really strange and dusty bookshops where I did find two of the portfolios of Ralph McQuarrie, for example. But uh, yeah, there were some, some famous trips that most of the times led to nothing. So your, your collecting has obviously moved on since, since 1988, obviously. But um, So what kind of collection do you have these days? Are you more of a focus collector or you just pick up things that you like as and when? It's hard, it's hard to describe... Uh, I call myself an eclectic collector because I've got a lot of different series, but I don't have one series really complete for 100%. I mean, I still collect vintage, although those items have become rather specialized. Figures on cards, I don't need that many. Some of the more expensive ones. Boxes that I don't have, variations, things like that, because for the more part, most of, or also, yeah, some loose variations or foreign variations, because uh, I'm more than, more or less complete with the vintage. But uh, I also, I'm always interested in other vintage items from droids or Ewoks cartoons, or like the magic transfers from the vintage area. Just nice, nice. Uh, one of the items I would really love to get is one of the is a is a play mat that was released in the UK uh, in the vintage era. It was a very colorful play play mat. I've forgotten the the, the company that produced it, but uh, yeah, I some I just go out and seek sometimes on eBay or on the forum uh, some cool cool vintage items. But it's 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 the gamma is so so large and diverse that it's hard to to tell 
which items I like. But basically, everything about vintage interests me. Right, so, obviously, pre-podcast, you sent me a couple of things that you did collect. Um, you did say you collected Kenner products. Why, why Kenner? Well, just not, it's just not uh, exclusively Kenner. I mean, it's just vintage. I always call it vintage Kenner. Yeah, I suppose. Basically, yeah. The, either if you collect ballet toy or clipper, except from the variations, yeah, it's, it's Kenner. <laughs> of course, the, the, the packages is, is different and it's original and it's, yeah, it's, it's not Kenner. But yeah, it's basically how I how I called it. Yeah, how I called it was. <laughs> um, and you also stated that you collect a bit of modern Hasbro items, yeah? Yeah, well, quite a bit. <laughs> um, just well, the market these days is absolutely saturated, isn't it, with different lines and different models? How do you decide what to collect with your modern? Or are you? I don't. Just, I take it you're not a completist when it comes to modern items, or you're a no, no skin. Yeah. Well, um, how I can decide. Nowadays it's easy because I've been collecting for so long that I've grown, I've begun to grow out of space. So I have to be really picky about what I pick up nowadays. But it's been a process of many years and been collecting <laughs> so many things that when you grow out of space, well, yeah, the decisions are sometimes made for you. If you're a collector and you are going to start collecting today, I think it's could, it could be a hard decision to choose the, 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 the kind of items you want to collect because the quality of the items that are on the market nowadays, yeah, it's, it's really amazing. Uh, it's, the quality is still, it's still growing. The prices are still growing as well, unfortunately, because, for example, the Sideshow 12-inch dolls, they just become more and more expensive. Uh, but if you start to collect now, you really have to find out for yourself what you want to collect and what you want to do with it, because otherwise it's going to be a maze. <laughs> yeah, you said it. Um, are you going to go down the, the Rebel route figure or uh, an episode 7? Yeah, yeah. But uh, for the moment, I just, I'm just planning on to collect the figures from Rebels, because of the low point of articulation, they shouldn't take in much place. <laughs> And perhaps one of the cool vehicles, and episode seven, yeah, probably the same. I know I just can't uh, ignore them. Yeah, once you see them, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, right. Also, you said about micro machines, which are interesting actually, because my young lad loves the old micro machine toys. Yeah. Well, uh, micro micro machines was one of the first toy lines that was available in the nineties uh, before the Hasbro. Well, before the 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 new Kenner figures were released. It was one of the really the true toy lines that, that reappeared in the 90s. And I collected them for a couple of years. But uh, since I was a student back then and there were so many items available, or were beginning to become available, at one point I decided to stop collecting them. But since Hasbro hasn't been releasing that many new figures in the last years, I thought it was an excellent opportunity to go and to go back and visit uh, the micro machines once again, and that's how I began to yeah complete the collection. And yeah, I'm just I'm missing a few items, uh, mostly uh, from episode one. But these items are outrageously expensive. Now, oh, right, they're the rare, they're the rare ones, are they? Yeah, it's like the the Teeth Palace, which goes for yeah. There is one on eBay 
It has been there on eBay for many years, but it goes for five hundred dollars. Uh, so no, thank you. <laughs> a lot of money for a micro machine set. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I picked my lads' ones up for about four or five pound over here. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sometimes, but some of the items are really more expensive, and they are rather difficult. Like I said, there are a couple of places from episode one that are really hard to get, but uh, there are also other items that are very common, and yeah, you can you can grab them for a couple of yeah, let's say ten dollars of or ten euros should do it. So then, the sets you've got, what would you, uh, if you had to pick one, what would you say is your favourite? Uh, I really like the ones from Bespin, maybe the Boba Fett transforming hat. So it's the hat of Boba Fett that can transform in, in Cloud City. Oh, yeah. yeah. It has a lot of uh, small rooms, the prison. What little figures came with that one? Uh, Boba Fett, Han Solo, Bespin, Luke, Darth Vader, Lando. I think the disassembled C-3PO as well. No, quite a good... Uh Good collection for that. Yeah, a lot of figures came with that one. And you also said you collect comics? Uh, yeah, I've been... Well, uh, I don't have all the comics, but I collected the Marvel comics back in the 80s in Dutch. They were issued here as well in Dutch. And then I started to collect comics again. Well, I, I began collecting the Dark Horse comics, but it's basically the same story as with Micro Machines. Uh, I began with Dark, with Dark Empire and then with Tales of the Jedi. But at one point, it became too much. And then I uh, paused uh, to buy the comics until 2002. And then I started to collect them again at, with the Republic series. Yeah. But, uh, well, afterwards I managed to, to get the ones I missed that I really wanted. But since 2002 I've been collecting them. Collect a bit of everything. Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. Because basically, I'm interested in in all things about Star Wars, about making the movies, about of course the universe itself, about uh, the fiction, about comics, about games. So then, then it's hard to to ignore things. Right. So you told me previously earlier that you're a huge droids fan. That's uh, right. Go, going back, I'll, I'll take it these were, um, were shown in the in Belgium in the eighties. They were shown in Belgium once on the first commercial station, uh, uh, commercial network in Belgium, but I don't, I don't remember the date. But I was smart enough to tape them. Ah. And they even showed Cody and the Star Hunters, which is the rarest of the regular episodes. They never showed the Great Heap, the television special, but they did broadcast the other episodes. And that's how I got introduced to droids, and, and most importantly, they were uh, shown in the original version. So the cartoons weren't dubbed. No. And so I believe they were shown in the late 80s or the early 90s, but I, I think it must have been the late 80s. Yeah. I, I, I watched them as a child, but I've got absolutely no recollection of them. So just a couple of quick questions to refresh my memory, really. Um, am I right in remembering that these were set before A New Hope, kind of like after Revenge of the Sith kind of era? Yeah, they well, they they take place in 15 years before A New Hope. Well, in the Legends era, of course, because like all the other material, uh, officially they are no longer a part of the canon. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you can't enjoy them anymore. No, that's it. That's it. Same with the books, isn't it? So yeah, exactly. Um, what, what were the plots behind the show? Now, I, I might be totally out with this. I've got a funny feeling that R2 and C3P had always got different owners. 
but that's the only thing I can really remember about it. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true, is it? So, uh, what kind of plots did they have? There were three arcs in the droids. So they had three different masters. And the first arc, they end up uh, being the owners, uh, being owned by Thal Joban and George Sat, which are young speeder racers. And they, uh, yeah, they have, uh, they, they come in contact with the size, with the, the from crime family. And the from crime family is building the Trigon One weapon satellite, which is another uh, massive weapon of destruction. So the droids have to team up with their young masters to uh, to disable and to destroy that weapon satellite. And in that last episode, they uh, are participating in the Punta Eve race, and that's the episode where Boba Fett makes an appearance. And the the the, the names of the the of their masters in these episodes also harken back to, to well, in, in the Rebels visual guide, in the new book that has been uh, released about Rebels, one of the speeder bikes is being, well, was conceived and was created by uh, those those masters of, of R2-D2 and C-3PO. Because at the end, they are getting hired by uh, the Zebulon Deck Speeder Corporation, and that's, it's that corporation that builds that speeder bike. You've not triggered anything. <laughs> my my memory's completely gone with that then. Um so I need to get them on DVD and have a rewatch. So, what is it about this show that you love so much? Um, I love the design. I love the concept of the design because I've seen a few of the sketches and the concept, and there is a lot of work that was done in in for that series. There were only thirteen episodes and the special, and then it was cancelled. I guess mostly because yeah, the the main heroes never made an appearance in the episodes. Uh, the Empire was just sparsely, was, wasn't was used that much. I think back at that time, it was difficult for fans to live with droids after the episodes and to give them an exact uh, place in the continuity. Right. And fans probably didn't care a lot about continuity back then. But the stories, yeah, they're just... I mean, it's, it's a cartoon for kids in the 80s. Yeah. You know, in the, in the United States, you couldn't use a weapon in the cartoons. And anything that looked like a bit, little bit of violence had to be solved in some way or another. I mean, the characters uh, shoot with a seed shooter, you know, that, that actually shoots seeds, <laughs> and that grow into plants, and that, that the plants manage to trap the enemies. So they always have to find some kind of solution uh, to authorize the violence. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a fun cartoon with... with great characters and great plants and it's got a lot of, of great details uh, I mean they visit the Banta graveyard and things like that or they, they visit the cafe and it, it has a, a head of a rancor as, it's, as, as the emblem of the cafe I don't know uh, what's the exact name uh, it's, it's in English for it but in the medieval times when a, a cafe and a bar was, was called Black Goose there was a, uh, yeah, a sigil of a black goose hanging on the entrance of the cafe. So it's the same thing that happened with the, with the Rancor hat in Droids. So it's got a lot of details in the yeah. series. I, well, I take it, being that, that big a fan, that you've got merchandise for Droids then? You were... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so things like the figures? Yeah, except, of course, for Vlix. Vlix, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. It's a little bit too expensive. 
I know it's quite extortionate because he's um he's not the prettiest, is he? Of figures, he's a, a fun, oh, funny looking lad. <laughs> I think he, I think he looks marvelous, but uh, unfortunately the price is marvelous as well. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. It's I, incredible, I, I could it? perhaps settle with a, a decent custom one, but they have become quite expensive as, as well. Well, I tell you what, I could do. Old um, Ben, who's off our podcast team, he is the exact double for Uncle Gundy. So um, oh. I could always send him over. You could have him pottering around for a week. On a ah, cool. <laughs> I mean it. He is. If you saw him, you'd think, "Wow, that is the uh, the biggest spitting image I've ever seen." It really is quite spooky, but uh, I'm sure he won't like me putting that out on the podcast. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so apart from the figures, um, when it comes to drawers, I'm not too clued up on it, but. Was there other merchandise available? I know there was uh, comics, because I, I do have the comics, but... Yeah, the comics. Is anything else? Well, there has been quite a lot of merchandising, and especially also about Ewoks. But you might have... Uh, you might remember that uh, a lot of the... A lot of items of droids were released in Spain, because somehow the cartoons were popular in Spain. And there are some of the items of droids from Spain are really rare. There is, a, like, a, a board game. Uh, but also a card game, and yeah, some really, really rare items of droids. They also have some of the storybooks that have appeared in uh, in Spanish. Yeah, they they're rather hard to find and to discover on eBay. So, of all the droids items, what's your favourite you've got, and what one item would you love to have in your collection? Well, in Celebration Europe too, there was a T-shirt available from droids, and I really like that one. It's a new item. It's about droids. I think they should release a lot more items about droids. I, I, and the item that I really would like to have, I would, I hope they would, uh, they will release all the episodes on Blu-ray or on DVD. I was just about to say if they ever re-release them, um, have they ever rerun them on the telly since the original? I don't know. Not in Belgium, except from the first one, and they have all appeared on the VHS. But they haven't all appeared on DVD. Only eight episodes have appeared on DVD. And so I don't remember when they were released. About around 2005 or six. I don't remember. It was the same time that the Ewok cartoons, some of the Ewok cartoons were released on DVD and the two Ewok uh, television movies. It was in that same batch that the droids were released. But uh, yeah, there were only eight episodes released on DVD. And how many episodes were there? Was there 13? 13 and then the television special, which is basically two episodes. Yeah, strange that they didn't release the um, last few, really, isn't it? No. No, no, they didn't release the first four episodes. Oh, it's the beginning of it, is it? Yeah, and then the elusive Kobe and the Star Hunters, which is part of the second arc. So basically, the three arcs contain three episodes, but the second arc contained five. And Kobe Kobe and the Star Hunters is the last one. Oh, right. But it's, yeah, it's, it's always forgotten. Okay, one more question about drawers then. Who's your favourite character? Mungo Beobab. There you go. You knew that. <laughs> yeah. Right, so let's move on, okay? So this is a... Now, you're the author of four Star Wars characters' backstories. And I believe all these stories have become official Star Wars lore? Yeah, they were published on the official Star Wars website. Wonderful. Now, right, now I really am going to... a. Uh, Make a mess of this. The four characters in question. Right, you're going to have to help me with the names. Swillacory. Yeah. I did all right with that one. The next one I'm a bit worried about. It's got a few Zs and Vs in it. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you just say it, because there's no way I can pronounce it. Well, I usually pronounce it as Sisft. Sisft. 
but I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, he's the fly guy from the cantina. All right. And we've got uh, Maxiron Agalerga. Yeah. Agal- is that right? Yeah. <laughs> and Wham Luffba. Yeah, exactly. Wonderful. Didn't do too bad. Um, can you tell the listeners how the opportunity came about to get, to get an opportunity to write official Star Wars canon? Because that is quite, a, quite an honour. Yeah, well, it was the, that was the first time I was allowed to do it. And it came up to what's the story. Some of the listeners might remember that it was some kind of a contest for members of the official Star Wars fan club online, which was called Hyperspace. And every week or every fortnight, there was a new character or a new vehicle or a new species. And the members uh, could send in could send in their own story or background about that character or species. But of course, in the limits of, uh, yeah, I believe it was 800 words. And of course, it had to fit in the, the entire universe. You couldn't invent too much stuff that, yeah, couldn't work. But basically, it was, yeah, every fan and every member of Hyperspace, uh, of Hyperspace could, uh, could participate. He did well with four of them. Yeah, and, uh, I believe that's Willa Cory, you know, the, the, the female, one of the female characters from the cantina. She was in the first round, so that I, I remember that five, well, winners between brackets were announced each time, and Swila was already chosen. So to me personally, it was like a confirmation that I was doing fine. Yeah, because maybe if some other people were really hoping to be chosen as well. Mm. They were perhaps starting to doubt if they were doing the right thing. So when she was chosen, I knew I had to just to, yeah, to continue to do what I was doing because I, I yeah, they seemed to like it. So could you give us a just a brief description of each of those, um, each of those four characters, just like so people know roughly who they are? Well, Swila Cory is a female. It's. It's a blonde female character. She appears briefly in the cantina after Ben Kenobi has cut down Ponda Baba and Dr. Avazan. And she's, well, uh, her name and part of her background had already been established in the customizable card game by Decipher. Uh, and that said that she was a thief, but I constructed a story that made her seemed uh, an, just an unfortunate character that had a lot of yeah, bad things happen to her but at the end it all turns out for the better now, right. and she's able to improve her life yeah, um, the, the next one, I'm going to let you pronounce it again yeah, so <laughs> the same thing happened with Sift you know, the Brizit that's his species, his name and his species and just a small part of his background was also established by Decipher uh, I made him a xenoarchaeologist, which is a specialist who specializes in yeah, strange and alien archaeology and societies. And I basically, some yeah, Indiana Jones was an inspiration for the story. I made him, uh, I turned him into some kind of a character that no one, no one in the cantina really believed the strange stories he told. But then he finds another character who really believes, who who wants to give him a chance, and then at the end of the story, they start on a journey together looking for fortune and glory. And I also managed to slip in some of the, some of the, some of elements from the droids cartoons, some of the 
planets from droids I managed to slip in the background of its system. Oh, wonderful. And Ma- Maxiron? Maxiron was the last one that was chosen. He's the, uh, he's the Pontifex who... He's, he's, I think he's uh, most likely the, the character that most people will remember since he's the person who uh, concludes the marriage of Anakin and Padme on Naboo in episode 2. So I made him the Pontifex, a holy man of some kind of a forgotten uh, religious order on Naboo, who was also able to uh, conclude an official marriage. And I also, yeah, it was, this one was rather difficult to write because it had to fit, well, it was rather difficult to write because it it did involve Anakin, Padme, Artadito and Citripio. I mean, those are really, really important characters. So you really did have to get it right. So I also created the story that uh, they they used names from an old uh, Naboo legend so that uh, Maxiron didn't really immediately recognize who they were and things like that. And the final one, um, Wamlufba? Well, Wamlufba is the original Yuzum that can briefly be seen in Return of the Jedi, but he's mostly known for some of the promotional and, and pictures where he's pictured with the large shoes and with his large uh, hunting rifle. He's basically another uh, misfit who manages to turn his, his life around and to improve his life. He gets imprisoned by a poacher on Andor because Yuzum originally come from Andor. And because he's really good in using weapons and in blasters, uh, he's chosen by one of Jabba's uh, henchmen to become his assistant. And then after the Battle of Karkoon, where Poznitkin uh, dies, Wamluva is free and yeah, he can do whatever he wants to do with his life. And he starts a, uh, he basically starts uh, a company to, to destroy uh, vermin on Tatooine at the end. Have any of these characters or any of your work ended up appearing in any other kind of Star Wars book, reference books or...? Yeah, yeah one, well, since Wamluva has been used quite some times, also in the Star Wars character encyclopedia, and he even has his, his own trading card from Germany, and uh, recently uh, Maxiron Agolaga is also mentioned in the new book Star Wars in 100 Scenes from Jason Fry, and they've also appeared in the complete Star Wars encyclopedia. You know, sometimes, from time to time, you see them pop up here and there. How would you start even going about creating a background story? I'm assuming it's of no end of research and planning. Well, basically, it's it's since ever since I I encountered the book of of the books of Western games in the early 90s and at the the end of the 80s, I became really interested in Star Wars lore because I I studied history. And I consider Star Wars universe to be a really, I mean, uh, a culture that exists, but of course in the fictional in the fictional world. But that's why I've always been uh, very interested in every character that is alive in the Star Wars universe, or in every creature, or every every species. And writing those backstories, yeah, you just have to know what you're talking about. You have to know what can be done, what can't be done. You have to know the connections, choose wisely what what characters can be used better, and yeah, it's it's always still a gamble. A gamble. You you never knew if your stories were going to be picked because 
I, I sometimes expected other stories had more chance to be chosen than the ones that were actually chosen at the end. So, yeah, you never, you never could tell, of course, in advance uh, which ones were going to be chosen, if there were any, any ones going to be chosen. Now, you're a regular contributor to StarWars.com now, so I'm kind of assuming there may be a link somewhere along the line. Can you tell us exactly how this came about? Because that's quite, a, quite an honour as well, isn't it, with StarWars.com? Yeah, absolutely, certainly, because, well, there are also uh, Sander de Lange and Kevin Beentjes are two uh, good friends. They are also part of TK, they're from the Netherlands. And we are basically the three people who write for the official Star Wars site who aren't native English speakers. So English is, of course, yeah, it's it's a foreign language for us. Um, so yeah, it's it's we can we consider it an honor, of course, uh, to write for for the official website, which is yeah, of course, all in all in English. But uh, I think there isn't truly a direct link between uh, the what's the story stories and the official sites um, except from maybe the fact that I have always I've always written about Star Wars for the TK41 magazine or online in, in a blog or in some kind of other way uh, so I never stopped writing about Star Wars and uh, I first met Pete Filmer online who used to work for Lucas online and I uh, helped him with um, uh, an anniversary article about droids, then I was also allowed to write a uh, report about Star Wars in concert when it visited Antwerp. And then afterwards I came in, in touch with the other people from Lucas Online. And when the blog was established, I was at once again able to write a report about a vintage exposition in Paris about vintage toys. And that was my first blog. And then, yeah... After that, I was able to write more, and they thought my ideas for articles were interesting, so I kept on doing it. So, how, a rough figure, how, how many do you think you've contributed um, to the website? I've done some together also with Kevin, and also one with Mark Newbold from the UK. Oh, yes, yep. So, I don't know, maybe 20? Oh, quite a few. Right now, yeah, then there are some... Quite established now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and then there are some more in the pipeline as well. Wow, oh, wonderful. You know, you're, you're, like I said earlier in the podcast, your resume just goes on and on and on, because you also played a, a part in Celebration Europe 2, where you participated in the International Star Wars Fandom Panel. Yeah. Which was alongside Gerald Holm. Yeah, alongside Gerald Holm. And Squidhead, for those who are wondering, isn't it, <laughs> as a figure-wise, anyway. What's, yeah, Squidhead? yeah. What's Squidhead's proper name? You're bound to know. Fessick. There you go. <laughs> um, so another great opportunity. So how did that, you know, another story, how, how did you get to be fronting that? Well, um, a couple of years ago, I was involved in the um, establishment of SWORA, which is the Star Wars Alterim Alliance, which is basically a, an organization that wants to uh, help fan clubs around the world. And Gerald Holm used to be the ambassador of that organization. But it had died out a little bit. That faded away. And then uh, Atas from Turkey, from the Turkish uh, fan club, he proposed to uh, re-establish Swora uh, during Celebration 2. And that's how the panel uh, came to be. And Gerald was uh, eager to be part of it. Uh, because, yeah, it was, it was uh, part of the old Swora. 
and he wanted to be part of it again. And yeah, we just didn't talk about Swore at all. We just talked about what it's like to be in a fan club that isn't based in the US. But uh, during the panel, we, we also announced the return of, of, Swore, of the Star Wars Outer Rim Alliance. That can also be found on Facebook, of course. You got, got any other memories from Celebration Europe? Many. Plenty of memories. <laughs> it was a fantastic event because I was finally able to meet many people that I have just known online, like Mark Newbold. I've known Mark for, <laughs> for many years. I think beginning of the two years, 2000, 2001, 2002. But we have never actually met. So it was the first time I met him. And it was also the first time I met other people like Mary Franklin, Leland Chi, Pablo Hidalgo, Jonathan Wilkins from Star Wars Insider. Oh, yes. So, and then we were all, TK41 was also able to run the official Star Wars trivia contest on Sunday, which was also a wonderful opportunity for us. You just mentioned Jonathan Wilkins. That's, that's something else you've worked with, isn't it? Jonathan Wilkins is, of course, yeah. the, um, one of the, is he the editor of Star Wars Insider? Yeah, he's the, yeah, he's the big, the big boss, the main editor, yeah. So you've had work published in there as well, haven't you? What, what work have you had published in The Insider? Well, my latest was also a report about the Star Wars Identities Expo in Paris. But, uh, before that, I was able to, yeah, to, to, to write and to, to help out with the Rogues Gallery feature along with Kevin and Sander from the Netherlands. And that basically was, what I did with what's the story? Uh, that feature. Well, the purpose of the of that feature was to give uh, lesser important characters from the movies a name. Background characters, characters. When when you blink, you miss them, but they are there. And in Rogues Gallery, we managed to to name a lot of uh, vintage figures that have that had never received a proper name. So that was quite interesting because in the we did we did I believe that we did four of them. But we managed to name like perhaps thirty characters or something like that. Oh, right. Each each episode had like twenty twenty characters. Some of them had already been named, but we had to well we included them to be complete. But we also grabbed any opportunity to name uh, new characters and to establish a little bit of lore because uh, after the first uh, rogues gallery that we did, we were also able to establish a little bit of lore. I mean, the, the home planet of the character and just one or two sentences, background. Same thing that happened with the Decipher card game. So they each, all they all have now a, a, some very short biography as well. Well, I, I now want to touch on something that you've, it, it's come up several times during the, um, during the interview, but you are the co-founder and president of TK421, this Belgian fan club. So when did you start the fan club and what inspired you to go down the fan club route? I have been um, wanted to do more with Star Wars from early on, from the beginning of the 90s, when I read this, well, when all the new things were arriving, the new novels and new comics. I just wanted to share things I read about Star Wars. But I didn't know any Star Wars fans. And that was until I met uh, Yves de Meijer. And that is a name that some of the listeners might recognize because he's got a shop in Belgium, in Ghent, called Gadget, and he used to run a business called Area 51. And he's one of the, well, he's one of the bigger dealers and collectors in Belgium. And I met him in 1995, 
and he was planning to start a known uh, a new Star Wars fan club. And that's how I got involved. But that fan club was called the Bounty Hunter Capture Log. And when the special editions uh, were uh, being, be- being released in Belgium, well, the, the guys from that fan club didn't really want to augment its popularity or they weren't planning to do any true promotion. And I just said to, to Yves de Meijer, well, yeah, that's something, that's an opportunity you can't miss. I mean, you have to, to grab that opportunity with the special editions to become more popular. And he just, uh, yeah, he said, well, yeah, if you, if you guys want to take it over and you want to, want to start something else, you have my, my, my uh, yeah. you, ca- you can do it. And that's how I came in touch with Laurel Battens and Christian Verté, the other two co-founders. And we wanted to start again because the magazine of the Bounty Hunter Capture Log appeared irregularly and we just wanted to, to, to have a fresh start with it. And that's how TK was created in 1997. So it's been a long old while. It's a it has been. <laughs> yeah. Um, how much work does... Let's tell the people that are members of it. How much work do you put into that? Too much. <laughs> because yeah, hours a week, or is it? Well, basically, we publish four magazines a year. They always appear at the same amount of time, and there are fifty-two pages filled with Star Wars. Um, they are, of course, black and white, except for the two covers, which are also, which are always original art. But yeah, planning a magazine and writing the articles that takes a lot of time. Yeah. Um, and then we also do a lot, do several meetings. We have a quiz meeting, and we have also a game, a board game meeting. But this year we had, uh, last week we had our fan day in Ghent, in Gadget, the, the store of the, of Yves de May, the original <laughs> founder of the first Star Wars fan club. And then we are present at the largest conventions in Belgium, just such as Facts or uh, Antwerp Convention. We just try to inform our people about what's going on in Star Wars, in the magazine, because we the magazine touches about every aspect. It touches the universe, making of aspects, collection, uh, droids, um, and comics, uh, books, even games for younger members. It touches nearly everything about Star Wars. Um, and then we have some of the meetings for, for our members where they can meet each other, and uh, yeah, that's, that's basically what we do. And of course, we have the website, which uh, has been online since 1998, and it has become the the largest Star Wars news website in the Benelux because it's also written in Dutch. So is the fan club purely in Dutch? Yeah, the the magazine is in Dutch. In Dutch, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because it was it it has been a, de- a decision that had to be made, but but yeah, most people in Belgium know a little bit of English, but. If you do the book, the magazine is in English, it's going to be more difficult for us. Yeah. And some of the readers, and especially the younger readers, don't know how to read English. And you also lose a bit of your of the originality. And yeah, after all, we are Belgian. We are Belgians and we do yeah. speak Dutch. So yeah. Would you ever consider expanding it and releasing an English version, you know, a converted version alongside it? It's impossible. Impossible. Uh, except if, if we would uh, discover some kind of Abramovich, perhaps... Who wants to invest <laughs> yeah. and pays a lot of money? <laughs> yeah, it would be a lot of work. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, then, then, yeah, we could do it. <laughs> so, um, where can uh, listeners check out the fan club for those who speak Dutch? 
uh, on the website www.tk421.be or on Facebook. Uh, you can find us, our page as well over there. I, I did go on there, but it was all in Dutch, so... Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you can still I translate. I looked at a few of the pictures, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, very good. Right, so getting towards the end of it now, I just just wanted to touch something you did mention to me before the podcast, that uh, you went to Tunisia. Yeah. Um, was that to visit the sets and locations? More or less, yes. Yeah. But it was in... If I correct, remember correctly, it was in 2000, and the crew of episode 2 had just left a couple of weeks ago. Or I was there, but I just managed to see the cantina, the original house of Ben Kenobi, and then of course the Sididris Hotel, you know, the last homestead. But I never managed to get to the Anchorhead building because there had been a flood, and I couldn't get past the the water on the road. <laughs> ah, wonderful! So it was worthwhile, worthwhile trip then. Yeah, because there are also there are a lot of sets in Tunisia that I didn't visit because it was yeah I was uh, I was on Jerba back then and it wasn't I didn't go to Tunisia especially to visit the sets I just visited them because I was there. Yeah. Because yeah, it was it would of course not be wise not to visit them when you are there. Right. So just a couple of last couple of questions for you. Um, let you uh, get back to your uh, evening. As all of our listeners have just witnessed, you're obviously heavily involved in many aspects of the Star Wars world then. So, what is it that makes you submerge yourself in such a huge way in Star Wars? What, what does Star Wars really mean to you? It means, it means a lot. It probably means uh, more than I ever expected it to be. Uh, I think without Star Wars, I might have become someone totally different than who I am today. Because, it's yeah, I've been involved in Star Wars since since the early 80s and then especially since the late 80s I probably think there hasn't been a day gone by that I haven't been doing something with Star Wars either reading or writing yeah. so yeah it's it's something that's every day part of the life certainly struck a chord in somewhere inside even that because that yeah, is because I'm a big fan I'm a fan of fantasy um, and of everything that, that includes different worlds and fantasy and, and space so I think it's just what's, what, what fit best came at the right time at the right moment so if you were being moved to another planet and you were told you could only take one piece of Star Wars merchandise that you own what would you be taking with you I think it had to be the, the Blu-ray box yeah, good, good, good call no one's chosen that yet they always choose a figure or something from their childhood but that's a very very good uh, Star Wars are movies <laughs> yeah exactly I, I mean I really really like the toys and the vintage toys but yeah the movies it's what's what basically Star Wars is all about wonderful yeah you're right um, so finally Tim where can our listeners uh, contact you or check out any of your work your writing I think there's quite a long list of this isn't there <laughs> yeah well the best I think the best way is to go to the official Star Wars website and on the news section you can find my profile along with the other writers like Mark Newbold and then you can uh, find see the links how to get in touch with me, Facebook or Twitter. So that profile combines all the contact, contact information and, of course, on the UK forums as well, where I'm known as Sompitale. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely put uh, some links to, to your work when we release the podcast. Wonderful. Yeah, definitely needs checking out. Well, Tim, the time has gone way too quickly and like so many interviews I've conducted, I feel like we've only scratched the surface. And would absolutely love it if you would come on again in the near future, maybe even as um, 
maybe even come on as a guest host for a podcast would be. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah, it'd be great to have you involved in something like that. I'm sure the la- other lads would uh, agree with me. It'd be good to have have you. Involved I certainly would be interested in a whole show. Yeah, so maybe we'll talk about that uh, sometime off air. But thank you ever so much once again. It really has been a real pleasure, Tim. No problem, and the honour is all mine. It was an honour to be a guest. Wonderful. Thank you ever so much, pal. Ben, I believe you had a question tonight. Uh, yeah, just um, a little thing that got me thinking the other day. I've been expanding my loose uh, vintage set, and basically, if you break it down, they were effectively released in, in four waves of figures. So you've got um, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and Power of the Force. And I just wanted to ask the other podcast presenters, which of the four waves do you think is the strongest in terms of the figures and the lineup, and which do you think is the weakest? So I'll throw that one over to Grant first. That is a brilliant question, Ben. I'm really impressed with that. Man, that's going to be a super tough one for me because I love all of them so much maybe start off with the worst is probably the last 17 but there are some really strong contenders there like the Imperial Gunner I love the way that they sort of went outside the box with the a man a man but yeah I'd say that's possibly the weakest of the three and as the best I like the fact that when Return of the Jedi came around that they started using fabric for the cloaks I thought it was a brilliant move so I'd probably say Jedi is probably my favourite a lot though Empire does have a stronger range of quality figures with quality weapons you know a lot of the Jedi we- uh, figures come with staffs and you've still got to have the Ewoks in fact thinking about it I think the Empire Strikes Back was the best run and probably Power of the Force was the weakest but they're all super strong man love them all ah interesting um, Rich what about you uh, yeah it's a good question this Ben I think that the strongest wave was the Empire Strikes Back wave because there's there's quite a few Imperials in there and there's a good mix of different characters. Um, we've got some good weapons with the Luke Bespin saber um, being a lot better than the one from the first the first wave. So I'm going to go with Empire Strikes Back. The weakest I'm going to go with Jedi. I think too many Ewoks, uh, too many characters that are just dull, possibly. You know, I, I would have liked to see more Imperials in the Jedi. You know, you've, you've, you've got Klaatu, people like Abundant. They're more Jabba's henchmen. I think there was more scope for more of the, the real Imperial characters to be released. Uh, Pete? Uh, yeah, um, I always found the Empire Strikes Back range a bit a bit naff, really, because there's lots of sort of Hoth things in there. And those figures always look a bit sort of dull. I didn't like them when I was a kid, especially. And I'm not, not too bad of them now. Bespin, Lear and stuff were okay. Bespin, Luke was fine. But, um... I think my I think my favourite range has got to be the first run. Then probably my least favourite. If I could have to divide it up, probably the Hoth range of figures, along with return, some of the Return of the Jedi stuff. Like Rich said, the amount of blooming Ewoks that turned up. I mean, as a kid, it was the most boring thing. As you're waiting for figures to come out, you're trying to see what's new, and it's like, oh well, another e- Ewok. Cannot wait for that one. Um, and it really did at the time just drag on, and that kind of I think for for lots of people like myself probably killed off the uh, the enthusiasm because you you wait for some sort of robot or a droid or something coming out, but uh, at the time it was that power force it, it didn't it never it never hit a, a range of me ever. 
because it was a, a time when you'd kind of lost interest a lot of the, the Star Wars stuff because there wasn't the main range of characters. I don't think I ever remember seeing Luke Skywalker in a Stormtrooper car, but uh, I'd say best, the first range, uh, the worst, Hoth and any Hoth and uh, bits of Return of Jedi toward the end of it, like the Ewok stuff. Are you going with Empire Strikes Back or are you going with Return of the Jedi then, Pete? Because you've got to go with one. You can't pick this. <sighs> uh, just for the fact that there were so many dull Hoth characters, I've, I've got to go for the worst, Empire Strikes Back. Okay. Joe, what do you think? Well, I think all the ranges have strong and weakish figures. But if I was picking a poor, I have to agree with uh, Grant on the last 17. I think, um, I think Han Carbonite has got a ridiculously thick neck. I think Imperial Dignitary and Anakin could have easily been done without. So generally, I think, yeah, probably the, the weakest. And as my favourite, I love the Hoff figures, Pete. I love yeah, them. me too, man. I love everything about Hoff. It was my favourite set no! of wars. And um, I think you need to have a rethink there. But my favourite, I have to say, the first no. uh, the first 21, uh, first 20 figures, I think you've um, got the main characters there. The iconic ones, your Luke Farnboy, your Vader, um, Solo, Chewie. I think the droids, you know, I love R2-D2. And, and then I think you've got the aliens, the Cantina aliens are brilliant. You know, Greedo didn't look like that, but I think he's an amazing figure. One of my favourites. Yeah. So I have to say Star Wars. I think this is a really uh, that's a really good question, Ben. It's so tough because they all have their their, their high points and their low points. Uh, yeah, I think it's really difficult to, you know, I think I change every day basically, depending on how I feel. It's quite interesting hearing what uh, you guys had to say about it as well, because I mean, I I'd thought about it myself, and I came to the conclusion that my, my favourite, personal favourite, is the Star Wars. Uh, the first 21 figures because they're you know classic characters, a great selection of some of the biggest in the in the uh, film. Um, you've got Darth Vader, you've got Ben Kenobi, you've got Luke Farmboy. Um, the only thing I thought was a bit of a downer on that was the uh, the Cantina aliens. They're nice, but the figures have got the feeling that they were a bit rushed to get out in terms of the sort of detailing on the bodies and things like that. My least was actually Empire Strikes Back, for a similar reason to, to Pete. I found the Hoth figures quite samey and quite anonymous. There are some heavyweights in that in that bracket, Yoda, Luke Bespin, and the Atom TIE pilots, but uh, the rest of the, the Hoth figures didn't really do it for me. Return of the Jedi, I like them. I think they had some great accessories for some of the figures, Luke Jedi, Leah Bosch, and the Lando Skiff in particular, but... Jabba's goons and a load of anonymous Ewoks um, and Power of the Force I, I don't know some of the figures I thought in the Power of the Force range were the ones that I like the most uh, Luke Stormtrooper the R2 with a pop-up saber I like Hand Carbonite I like EV-99 and I think the Imperial Gun is a really good figure but then you've got some of the worst the Imperial Dignitary Anakin and you know the random Jabba goons so yeah I went Star Wars best Empire Strikes Back least I don't get your Empire argument, okay? I think the the Rebel Soldier, the Hoth Battle Gear, I think it's a brilliant figure. One of my favourites as a child. The Imperial Stormtrooper is brilliant. The Asset Driver is brilliant. Uh, Han Hoth is brilliant. Luke Hoth is brilliant. Uh, just, My fire pilot is brilliant. Yes, I, I agree with you there, but the Hoth, it's almost like, let's put the... Um, they're in the snow, the they're in, to be wearing. Well, they're all in moulded parkas, aren't they? So, no, I preferred... It, it's cold, Ben. Go and stand in the snow for a little while, mate, and don't put a coat on. I prefer my hand solo as uh, 
the uh, the, the original pilot, the rogue in his waistcoat. Yep, yep. But, like, what about um? You, but you can't. I mean, Luke Stormtrooper with the sort of beetle uh, Beetlejuice head thing going on there. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, he's got no neck. Yeah, it's, it's a tiny head. I like the concept behind the figure there. I like the concept behind all of the figures and the last seventeen, but I just think it's. And I love all the last seventeen except Anakin. Never been a fan of that figure, but you just passed us to pick a weakest. Okay, okay, guys. Droids or Ewoks? Neither. Ewoks. Next. Droids. Do you know? Do you guys know where the the word Ewok comes from? Yes, it's a cooking device with an E at the start. Enlighten us. Well, originally the um, the story was going to be that the uh, end all was going to be, you know, the forest moon of the Wookies. And by making the Wookiees half the size, what they did was take the word Wookiee and take the E off the end of Wookiee and put it at the beginning, making Ewok. Wookiee, Ewok. Yeah, I can see how that works. Have you just made uh, that up? No, no, it's, it's Star Wars. Are you sure? Is it in a book by Stephen Sansweet? Because if it's not, I don't believe it. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true, man. Okay, uh, welcome to episode five of the event section. First of all, um, I'd like to ask Rich, how did he find his time going to Sheffield Film and Comic Con? Did you have fun, mate? Yeah, I did, Grant. Sheffield was absolutely fantastic. The only other Comic Con that I've been to, like Sheffield, was the one at Newcastle, and Newcastle suffered from horrendous problems. So I was a bit wary of the same problems occurring, and I believe there were similar problems in London. But once I got to Sheffield, once you got to the car park, the staff there were absolutely fantastic. And you had people being directed to Backgate, Sidegate, Eastgate, Westgate, Northgate. They were directing you to all the different parts of the stadium so there was no one central area. And everything was um, tickets up front by the time I got there. And I think after a certain time, you may, you may have been able to pay on the door. I got in the place about half nine, only about a 20 minute wait outside and more, so that was waiting to see Jason. And once I was inside, the first hour and a half, two hours, you could walk up and down every single aisle. There was very few people at the stalls and you could do all your browsing. It was absolutely fantastic. Got a bit busy round about the 12 o'clock mark, but still nothing like what we saw at Newcastle. And that busy period lasted for about an hour and a half to two hours. Uh, so I just decided to go and have a wander upstairs. Uh, I saw some of the guests. David Prowse was selling autographs uh, for a very, very reasonable £15, which, were, which was nice to see. But there, there were a lot of guests from Red Dwarf, which is another passion of mine. I saw Chris Barry and uh, Robert Llewellyn. So I, I stopped and had a chat with uh, Jeremy Davies, which, which was great fun. The talks are really interesting. Dirk Benedict from A-Team and Battlestar Galactica, he, he, he was a good laugh. And the, the Red Dwarf guys were great. Uh, and there was there was a fair bit of vintage to see. There was a guy called Jay, and he was selling a lot of high-end carded items. He, he commanded a, uh, a premium price, and he was absolutely refusing to budge on any of the prices. But, you know, he stated his price, and he either bought it or he didn't, but he would not budge. But there were other areas that had some vintage items. And what was particularly great was a stall had beta figures, and he was charging beta prices. You had a, you had a few figures that he was selling for a pound, two pound, there was a, a brown-haired Luke Farm boy for four ninety nine, which I thought was a great price. Uh, I would have snapped it up, but it was probably a bit too faded for me. There was a box that, that, that was going for £70. I nearly picked it up. It had the chain guns. It was fully complete. 
So I thought uh, £70 was quite a reasonable price considering it was a convention. No, a fantastic day. It was really well worth it. I've only been to two, but it was far better than Newcastle one for organisation, which really made the day. Was uh, anyone else from the forum there? Yeah, I met um, our new mod, uh, Liam, Doc, uh, Sith Lord. He was Avery's dad. Uh, I think his dad was a bit unwell, so he had to leave early. So it's always nice to bump into Liam and say hi. Obviously, I met Jason off the forum as well. And uh, one of Jason's friends was, was hovering around. His name escapes me at the moment. I think he might have dipped into the forum from time to time, but he's not a regular. I think the Sunday was the day for the forum, guys, and I went there on the Saturday. So, uh, I think there was about half a dozen turned up on the Sunday. W- was Liam a mod by that time? or was Liam was a mod because um, I think it was on that morning or the day before that the, the earth-shattering news broke. So I congratulated him and I said, you know, well done. His dad said something along the lines of, yeah, it's, it goes to show what a bit of brown nosing does. So I'll yeah. have to ask him what he, I'll have to ask him what he meant by that. But no, Liam's, Liam's really looking forward to, to the challenge. Um, he's really excited. No, yeah, they kept that quiet, but I couldn't think of anyone better to be a, a mod on Star Wars Forum UK. So uh, big congratulations to there, Liam. Okay, this is the events to see the year out. First up is StokeCon Trent, September 28th at Staffordshire University. Then we have Autographica, September 19th to 21st at the Hilton in Birmingham. Echo Base One, which I think some of the guys from the forum were trying to organise. That's on the 4th of October at Sasha's Hotel in Manchester. DEFCON 3 on the 4th and 5th of October in Totten, Southampton. More information about that later. London Film and Comic Con at the Olympia, October 18th to 19th. We have FAX 2014 on the 18th to 19th in Ghent in Belgium. Hopefully the podcast crew will be going out for that one, so you know, hopefully we'll have a report for that next month. Feel the Force Day at Kingsgate Conference Centre, Peterborough. That's on October the 18th. Chippenham Sci-Fi and Film Fair will be in Needle Hall, Chippenham on October the 25th. And Cardiff Film and Comic Con at the Motorpoint Arena on the 8th and 9th of November. Now going back to DEFCON 3 on the 4th and 5th of October. Now we had an interview with Wayne Streak, who's a friend of the show. Uh, Unfortunately, I guess this was going to happen at some point, but... Due to technical difficulties with Skype and CallNote, we have actually lost that interview. Really sorry about that, Wayne. But if I could just reiterate what Wayne told us, DEFCON 3 is happening on the 4th and 5th of October in Totted in Southampton. It's going to be an amazing day there. They've got guests from Star Wars and Red Dwarf and Doctor Who. Uh, there's going to be a, a marshmallow man that's going to take over the town centre there. And all the proceeds go to a, a a children's cancer charity which I know is important to the people who organised it. If you'd like to know more about this event, type DEFCON3 into Facebook and they have a Facebook page there, or alternatively go to nerdageddon.co.uk and you can find the information there. It looks like it's going to be a fantastic event and let's support it. For more information about all these events, type their names into Google. I'm sure you can find them. And uh, yeah, let's celebrate the end of the year. Obviously an event coming up at the end of the year is the farthest from and we are still planning to have that quiz against the Kivecast. So Rich, have you got another training question for us this month? Okay, and no cheating in this one. My question is, I'm going to I'm going to go the order that I've got on my screen, which is Pete, Grant, Ben and Stu. So my question is, how many vintage Star Wars figures are wearing gloves? Now we're going to include single gloves as well with this one. Pete, how many vintage Star Wars figures are wearing gloves? How many are wearing gloves? Wow, you really are the funster of this pack. Uh, ooh, I reckon 27 and a half. 27 and a half. Grant? Oh, man. 
Because, you know, a Boris man's got gloves, and Darth Vader's got gloves, and... Yeah, that's not a number. Oh, I know, I know. Um, but I, I can't even comprehend at the moment. I'm thinking most of them might have gloves on, actually. Yeah, probably most of them. Boss doesn't got, got gloves on. I would say 65. 65, okay. Ben? 22. 22. Joe? I, I only think it's around the 30 mark. Right, well, I've got a feeling up. that perhaps somebody's counted up here because I've totted exactly 30. Oh, oh, I, was up near oh I was almost there. <laughs> yeah, that, that was pretty impressive. That's, I hope that question comes up in the Clive cast. Um, in your face, Grant. Yeah, so hang on, I'm counting. Am I on the team? Well, who who had the 60-odd? Was that Grant? Oh, yeah. Fail. None of the Ewoks have got... Um, Ewoks. Ewoks! have got... No, a, so you can take out about in there, can't you? Yeah, well... Grant's on the Grant's on the reserve team with Ben now. Um, so you was both a minus one from your performance in last week. I think uh, Stu, Stu won last week, didn't you? No, oh, me. sorry, no, last week it was Pete. Me, it was and Pete. I got very close this time as well. Yeah, so Pete, yeah, Pete's our star man. Pete first, right, just first a, second is nowhere. Yeah. A quick whiz through then. I've got Vader, Stormtrooper, Desktop Commander, Jawa, Tusken Raider, Fett, Greedo, Han Hoth, Hoth Trooper, Hoth Rebel Soldier, Dengar. At our driver, Leah Hoth, Imperial Commander, Rebel Commander, At our Commander, Luke Hoth, Cloud Corp Pilot, TIE Fighter Pilot, Nine Num, Biker Scout, Emperor's Wild Guard, General Maydean, Luke Jedi, uh, Rebel Commando, ATST Driver, Imperial Gunner, Imperial Dignity, Luke Stormy, and Luke Poncho. I made 32. Did you? I've just counted 32. I may have made a mistake. I'm, I'm, I'm still, I'm still, oh, oh, hang on, hang on. We no, can't no, have no, a mistake. No, yeah. If it's 32, I'm still closest, so. No, I'm sticking with me 30. I'm just saying oh, I may have made a mistake. I'm sticking with me 30. It's tough, because some of them, some of them is like, ooh, is that flesh or is those gloves? I agree. What would you say, blue snag? I just oh, couldn't oh. figure it out. With it's not real flesh. Flesh, yeah, I agreed flesh on blue snag. That was a difficult one. What about Luke Jedi? He's only wearing one glove. You said yeah. gloves. I said glove or gloves, so oh. Luke Jedi, yeah. I'm still getting 30, mind, so perhaps the other three guys can do a count up when you've got some time and see what you get, but I'm, I'm seeing 30. I must admit, I've got nothing better to do than count gloves. <laughs> <laughs> it took quite a while, uh, so I must yeah, have had nothing. <laughs> I must Stop have had the editing, Stu. Stop the editing, just, you know, just get on with club counting <laughs> on vintage Star Wars figures. Yes, yeah, listeners, if this is two weeks late, it's because I'm counting gloves. And next week is eyebrows, and then it's sideburns. Rich, you never get to in- enjoy this. Um, Rich, question for you. Nate, what are the five tallest figures? Oh, that, that is a good question. IG-88? Yeah, I'd go with that. Yeah. I would say size noodles must be a tall one. Uh, a man, a man, a man, a man, a man, a man. A man, a man? I don't know about size noodles. A man, oh, a man is, yeah. Just with that little wispy thing on the top of her head. FX-7's pretty tall. Yeah. Here's when you extend the top out, anyway. Nope. Chewy? Yep. Vader. He has had five. I would say Hammerhead should Yak be in there. EV99. EV99, yeah. Yak He's the tallest. So I, I reckon the answer is Chewbacca. EV, Hammerhead, Amanaman, Yakuri, and IG88. Can anyone hear me or am I talking to myself? Yakface is one. Yakface is enormous. What about Yakface? So, as well as counting gloves this month, I'll also be lining up all the figures, <laughs> and we'll have a 96 count, or 97, 93, whatever, countdown of figures. 
if you want to get the figures exact, make sure you get yourself a 1978 Helix Star Wars May the Force Be With You ruler. <laughs> Even better if you can get it two seconds before the auction ends when Grant's the highest bidder. Well, off that was a good question, Rich. Yeah, well done. Aye, very good film, that Star Wars. Very possible, even now. Who'd have thought 30 years ago we'd all be sitting here drinking Chateau de Chasselet whilst watching Star Wars again? In them days, we was glad to have a beat of Clarto to play with. Oh, dad, yeah, with one arm. But you know, we were happy in those days, though we were poor. Because we were poor, my old dad used to say to me, a Minton car, 12 back Princess Leia, doesn't buy your happiness, son. I was happy then, I had nothing. We used to live in this darling old house with great big holes and roof. Star Wars figures were all they given to us. What's next door's dog and chewed them all? Chewed up figures? You were lucky to see a chewed up figure. We used to live in one room, or 26 of us. No furniture. Half the floor was missing, and we were all huddled together in one corner. And if anything was worth setting fire to for heat, it was either our young'un or an original Ben Kenobi. Eh, you were lucky to see a Ben Kenobi. We all had to sell our corneas for medical science just to be allowed to get within walking distance of a shop that may or may not have sold Star Wars figures. Oh, we used to dream of having our corneas removed. Would have been luxury to us. We used to have to imagine what a Star Wars figure even looked like. Our father would tell us about it and make us recreate famous scenes from the film with dead animals we found on roadside before we cooped them. You were lucky. Our mother and father used to scrape the dandruff from all the kids' heads to make enough realistic-looking snow for us to reenact hothballs. For a tauntaun, we only had a hollowed-out pigeon, and Chewbacca was a diseased baby rat we found behind toilet. And you try and tell the young people of today that, and they won't believe you. Share your tales of Star Wars figures when you were a youth on www.starwarsforum.co.uk The only forum that's worth bothering with. The rest are rubbish. Right, now on to this month's forum roundup. Rich has been looking at the first uh, first thread, and it was entitled Storing 12-Inch Figures by Palafan. Rich? Yeah, as most people know, I, I do enjoy the 12-inch auction figures. And I, I think it was at Fathers from 5, where I was talking to Lee Bullock, and he, he was telling me about the IG-88 and the melt marks. And initially I thought, oh, that's an IG-88 problem, so once I eventually get one of these I'll have to separate the different components out so I don't get these melt marks but Palafan posted on um, the forum to say that he spotted some stormtroopers that have got quite heavy melt marks and Boba Fett's 
Lee Bullock came on to the thread and he added the Jawa to that. So I thought, oh, crikey, that's four of the 12-inch figures now are suffering from melt marks. Uh, and obviously that's quite concerning because Lee made it very clear that there's no cure for this at all. We can slow the process down, but we can't stop the process from happening. And it's something to do with fixed law. And I don't know if any of you lot are chemical engineers or anything like that, but just in case you don't know what fixed law is, it's to do with the high and low concentration of molecules in different plastics. So Lee came online and put a fantastic paragraph in there which discusses vinyl migration. Now, what he's got to say is that vinyl migration in PVC contains plasticizers, which allows PVC to remain flexible. Now, when this PVC is in contact with another kind of plastic that does not have the plasticizers, the original uh, plasticizers migrate over to the other kind of plastic, hence fixed law. And that's what causes the melt mark, the, the different chemicals coming over to, to melt into the, into the other figures. And where the 12-inch figures are particularly susceptible is the IG-88 with the bandolier and the grenades. Okay, so the grenades and the bandoliers need separated. The FET around the wrists, the Stormtrooper around the wrists, and the Jawa along the belt. Uh, later on, Lee also mentioned that there are some reported issues with the sabers. If you hook the sabers onto the belts on the figures, it can also get melt marks there as well. So what can we do about it? Well, the answer is very little, and a lot of it is to do with, with the environment. So if you store your figures in a cool environment, uh, it is going to slow the process down. What Lee suggested is talcum powder. So for the FET and the Stormy, a little bit of talcum powder along the wrists and rotate them every now and again just to keep them flexible. Uh, the FET, Lee suggests, doesn't suffer from as much because of the paint on the FET. The Stormy is, is moulded in the plastic, so obviously that's more susceptible. The Jawa, perhaps remove the belt from the Jawa. If you're that concerned, I think there are a few examples where the, the belt has actually melted through the cloak and you probably won't be able to remove the belt on those figures. And, and if you did, I would imagine that the belt would probably become destroyed and then you'd have the problem of the, the cloak being melted into the scar. And as for the IG-88, other than separating the items out and um, perhaps putting them in some kind of airtight bag or something like that, I'm afraid to say that this is happening in boxed items as well. So it's very worrying. And obviously my my concern as well is, okay, this is happening with the 12-inch figures. What else could this be happening to? I am wondering about the Tauntauns, perhaps, and the Jewback. Perhaps we're going to see some of those with melt marks appearing where the reins are touching, where the saddles um, across the Tauntaun's belly, the Jewback's belly. So worrying things. Any guys got any comments on this? Uh, yeah, Rich. I'd have thought uh, surely the best place to store your dolls would be in a doll's house. Quite possibly, um, perhaps at the next Father's Farm, if we go and have a conversation with Lee Bullock and we'll ask him that question about uh, how he feels about dolls and it'll be interesting to see his response. I've uh, heard Lee's uh, opinions on the matter, so yeah, I don't need to discuss it again with him, I'm sure. And even after hearing Lee's opinions, you've still got the bottle to come on and say that, Ben. I admire you for that. Well, luckily, he's not here with me at the moment. Otherwise, I certainly wouldn't be saying such a thing. But uh... Does anybody else have any 12-inch figures? Yeah, I do, yeah. And have you, got it? Have you noticed yeah, any melt marks? I'm just about to go into my room and check. <laughs> got a bit of a panic on now. No, my what? figures are fine. They've got the force. Don't worry about it. It's kind of scary, isn't it? It certainly is. I remember a guy on the... It might have been on Rebel Scum, but I, th- I think it was on... No, no, it was on Facebook... And I posted on there about the IG-88. 
you know when you can just sense panic when you're having a conversation with somebody and you just disappeared and you come back later on and he was like, oh no, I can't believe it. My IG88's got melt marks and he, he wasn't aware of it, he didn't notice it. Uh, and he tried to take the, ba- the bandolier, sorry, the grenades out the bandolier and I believe the straps may have split as he was pulling the, the grenades out. And I think Lee's advice is if the grenades don't come out, leave them. Don't try and get them out because you're going to cause further damage. That's how advice out. There's some interesting pictures put up there, wasn't there, from eBay where the stormtrooper, you could see the um, deterioration there on his hands. Yeah, there's, there's some frightening images. Puts it all into perspective, isn't it, that these, these items do have a shelf life. Uh, well, the toys but, were never designed to last 35 years and the fact they're still here is, is, is amazing. Rich, give us a list then. Which, is it all of them that we have to worry about, or is it, um, are some of them okay, like is R2-D2 something not to worry about? I'll go in order of um, most serious to, to least serious that I'm aware of. IG-88 right at the top of the list because of the bandolier and the, and the grenades. Uh, second on the list seems to be the Jawa. The Jawa, um, the belt is causing the problem on the Jawa. Next is the Stormtrooper. Check the wrist area in particular. Then the Fet. And then after that, you've got the three figures that come with the saber, which is your Luke, your Ben, and your uh, Darth Vader. But that that appears to be only if you use the clip on the belt to hang the lightsaber on. After that, um, no known reports of any issues with any of the other figures. Okay, and this happens with the Lily Leddy figures as well? Yes, Grant, it, it, it does. Uh, Leddy, uh, Leddy figures are equally susceptible to this, and obviously because they're poor quality, the damage is going to happen much quicker with those kind of figures. Scary stuff. Yeah, so if anybody is worried about the 12-inch figures, if you go to the Star Wars Forum UK, in the, in the vintage collecting chat is a thread that's titled Storing 12-inch Figures, and it is worrying. What about, um, what do you think about the torn torn and the jewel back then? Do you think there's a possibility of their fixed law applying to these? I guess anything's possible, mate, you know, with the plastic degradation over the long periods of time. I'm surprised oh. no, no, no one's done tests on this stuff. I mean, just, you know, you take an old, old Star Wars, old stores, beta figures and, and ships and stuff and just test them. I mean, it can't be that hard to do. Well, it's not that hard to do, but just test them over time. See what happens to them under various conditions. See how yellow they can get. Um, be, be, be interested to do that and actually get that information out to the public or to the collecting public. I'm sure I remember reading a thread a long time ago about how long do they think the plastic is going to last and I'm sure I remember eight years being mentioned before the figures will absolutely melt to a pulp. Anybody recall that? No, but that's that's kind of like the general... You know, I mean, plastic is supposed to design to to last you know over 50 years. Um, and it's and it's supposed to be brought down recently because of various uh, recycling laws to break down a bit quicker. So you'll you'll get it. I think over the last twenty years, it's it's been reduced. But I think when it was being <laughs> manufactured out of all sorts of materials in the in the seventies and eighties, it was designed to last a bit longer. So you probably find it's all full of all sorts of additives and things that are probably banned now. Um, that, that's leading to the degradation. Well, it's it's interesting, that, isn't it? Because I'm sure we put all these figures in our mouths and that when I was a kid. And there'll be all sorts of additives in them. And, and Ben's living proof that, um, you know, they don't cause any harm. I mean, Ben's, Ben's skin has been turned black. It's quite amazing. And he's got this amazing teeth and, and hair. I mean, it, it, his transformation over the years is, is quite remarkable. Right, the next thread we're going to be looking at is a, is a thread by myself. It's only a short one. It's more um, Pog Team's uh, opinion on this. 
It was a uh, thread put up by Jam Bobby B called Given the Recent Price Rises. Now, basically, what he was asking was, uh, with the rising costs, are people considering selling up? Now, we did a poll and 51 separate people voted. 71% said no, 14% said yes, and 16% said maybe. Now, he was talking about uh, he can't afford to collect anymore. He said priced out the market and it's making him tempted to make a profit on the items he's already got. I think Pete Gowdy said said on his um, reply on the thread was quite good that if you're selling up for a big payday, you get a big lump of money, but you will dwindle it away in a couple of months and then have nothing to show for it, which I totally, totally agree with him. Um, me personally, I wouldn't sell up now unless it was something like an emergency, like I couldn't pay my mortgage or a family health bill needed paying. It would have to be a... Something like that. I wanted to know whether you boys would ever consider selling up because of the price rises that are high at the moment, Sir Rich. Very, very unlikely. It would take some major life-changing event. I, I would try and sell everything I could first, like my kids, my wife, the dogs, the horses. I'll try and get rid of all of them. And if nobody took any of them, then I would. But I would probably start with the high-end items first. The try to sell the DTs and sell the early bird certificate, palatoid desktop, etc., etc., because once those have gone, it would make a, a very, very small dent in the volume of the collection. So it still, it would still look as though I had a big collection. Whereas if I did it the other way, and if I sold my minor items, I would lose 95% of my items, have a very, 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 very small collection. And that's not really what I'm in it for. I'm, I'm, I'm there for the nostalgia, and the more the better. So it would have to be life-changing. And uh, Ben? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty similar to, uh, to, well, what Pete was saying, really, you've got to ask yourself, what are you collecting for? Are you collecting to try and buy stuff to speculate and make a profit? Or are you collecting for the joy of collecting? And I'm definitely in the second group. I've, you know, I've got a few bits and I guess my collection now might be worth a few thousand pounds. Perhaps I could sell it and make a few thousand pounds on it. But without sounding like a knob, the money that's tied up, and that I've spent on my hobby, it's, it's spare cash that I've had, and it's not money that I need at the moment. So unless I absolutely had to, if I lost my job or something like that, then yes, of course, you do what you've got to do to survive. But to sell it to make a profit, no, not not really interested. I get too much pleasure from collecting, and even if it means that the prices go to the point where I can't really buy the pieces that I'd want to buy, I still keep the ones that I've got and appreciate them. Pete? Mine's not really worth much anyway, um, because it's mostly my played with figures when I was a kid, and I've always collected sort of like stuff that is not particularly mint. So by the time I finished my that collection, it's not worth much. Maybe my slave layer focus <laughs> could be worth a few quid, more than five pounds maybe. But you know, it's worth stuff all. I, I, but um, yeah, I'd, if I had to, if it was worth it, I, I'd, I had to sell it for a reason. I would, yeah, absolutely. It's just a bunch of uh, collecting things, isn't it? If it was, if life came first, you'd have to do it. Otherwise, you're stupid. But uh, that's just me. And uh, a Grant, who must have the most expensive collection here. Um, I've stopped collecting, mate. I think it's the market's gone ludicrous, and it's going to. I predict anyway. Well, it's definitely going to because the market's gone ludicrous on every single Star Wars item out there. And after Episode Seven, some of those prices will come crashing down, like it did after the Phantom Menace. And maybe I'll start collecting again. But at the moment, the climate is such that um, I could completely understand why people aren't collecting or thinking about selling up. If I was to sell up, now would be the time to do it. Because I reckon I can make some serious money. Um, and it has crossed my mind a little bit. But, 
yeah, my collecting's on hold. I mean, financially, I can't afford to collect at the moment anyway, but if I could, there's no way I'd be paying the prices that I've seen out there. I wish I, I, I wish I took a loan out two or three years ago and bought more stuff because I could have paid that loan back plus put a hell of a lot of cash in my body because at the moment, everything's lost its mind. And I think one of the important ingredients about this is the boom in Facebook groups where you have thousands of posts a day of people saying, here is my auction or, hey guys, if you check this out, which has now given coverage to another 100 or 200 buyers, whereas before you, uh, the, the bids might be limited or you might be the only bidder. Now forget about it. Everyone knows what, what's happening on, on the auction sites. So yeah, uh, I, I sympathize with anyone who's been priced out the market. And for me, I'll just uh, hibernate and see you in uh, 2016 to pick up. Try logo at Mark Bars for £100 and not £300. But you wouldn't you wouldn't sell it though, would you? Deep down. I oh, know mine's mine's going up in a massive uh, Viking style funeral pyre where you know it'll all be on a boat with my corpse and people will fire lasers at it until it catches fire. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm, I'm glad we're all in the same uh, same boat where we wouldn't sell unless we really had to. Ben, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow on with your thread that you're interested in because um kind of touches on a a similar sort of theme, doesn't it? Um, you've looked at a. Uh, Fred by Captain Solo 1978, which was entitled Anyone Now Feel This Is A Hobby For Millionaires? Yeah, I thought you'd probably do that, because they segue nicely into each other. On the flip side of, would you sell your entire collection because of what it's now worth, people that are wanting to buy and expand their collections are perhaps feeling like they're a little bit priced out of the market these days, because it's gone so, so nuts. I commented in this thread that I didn't believe at all that it's still a hobby for... It's just a hobby for millionaires. There are certain premium items that seem to be attracting huge premiums now. We've talked about Palatoy. There seems to be a bit of a craze for foreign cardbacks as well in terms of you don't really see them come up, and when you do, they seem to come up for quite a lot of money. And certain other things, 12 backs and other maybe more rare or more desirable items, but there's still plenty of budget mint on cards and I've referred to Poncho Belt's Mint on Card run a couple of times before, and there is an example of someone that, with a bit of patience, um, may be willing to accept perhaps where they were looking for a certain standard of card. If you still want to collect, you may have to set your sights slightly lower to pick up something that's a bit more reasonably priced. But I do believe that you can still collect if you're a bit more selective, a bit more patient, and maybe change your collecting habits a bit. And I also believe, and I don't know if you guys feel the same, but that the bottom has got to fall out of this market. There are only a certain number of people that are willing to spend huge amounts of money on certain items. And when these people have either bought a few items and then fallen out of the hobby, they've come in with a, few, with a bit of spare cash, bought a lot of stuff, sold it, and then they're not really interested. Or once their collections, the pieces that they think that they're going to want to buy they bought and they filled their collection with, that money's going to be gone. So any given item is only worth, you know, say you're looking at a 12-back that would have sold for £150 a few years ago that's now selling for £500. It's, it's only going to sell for £500 as long as there are people that are willing to pay that. And I think there's only a finite amount of people that have got this huge amount of cash behind them. And, and when they're either not collecting and they've done what they're going to do or they've bought what they want to buy, you can ask all you want for 
the same item, but you're only going to get what someone's willing to pay, and that's only going to be what they've got spare. So I don't know whether you guys feel the same about that. I, I agree with what you're saying for the most part. I don't think this is a hobby for millionaires. I just think that some people need to get a bit more um, selective, a bit more patient with their collecting. I mean, as, as Grant's proven with the Sigma items, if the 12-back Minton cards are un- unobtainable for the moment, then perhaps branch out into a different area and come back in a couple of years' time once everything's settled down. I think it's going to be virtually impossible for us to sit and wait for people to stop spending silly money on eBay. Because even if you added everybody on Rebel Scum to everybody who's on Star Wars Forum UK and on TIG, and we all agreed not to buy on eBay for a year or so, it's going to make absolutely no difference whatsoever. These items are still going to go for ridiculous amounts of money um, because we're such a small group in the, in the grand scheme of things. But yeah, some very good points there, Ben. We've got five five of us here. Um, it's our hobby, and none of us are millionaires. And yes, our collection habits may have slowed, but I think the key is our collection habits have changed. They've not stopped. They've changed for different things. I've already said my piece, really, in the, the last thread, but for... You know, if this podcast, if we can refer back to this podcast in a year or so, it'd be interesting to see what happens and how we feel at the moment. If there's a massive price crash that happens in, you know, 2016, we'll all look back and think, you know, well, we, when we were saying this stuff, we should have sold all our stuff then. But um, two things that, from a historical basis of looking back on this podcast, one of the things that grabbed me uh, is that two things sold recently for phenomenal money and these are ultra ultra rare items so you know for the reason of giving sort of like a historical context uh, there was a shreddy's original star wars serial packets from 1977 with the letter set rubbed down transfers three boxes and these went for 1217 pounds and 80 pence and the other one that blew my mind, which is also uber rare, and I've never even seen one come to sale, is the large original promotional sticker for Loins made Star Wars lollies, and that went for £686.99. So it might help if you are a millionaire. In terms of collecting, I mean, you have to understand that, that we've got a new film out next year, where so what it's going to do is heighten the, the you know, people's love for Star Wars, especially if it's a decent film. I know we had it with the, the the prequel trilogy, but I think a lot of that enthusiasm died down quickly after the, the madness of the Phantom Menace. As soon as the Attack of the Clones came out, it, it dipped and people lost interest. But I think um, because we're going to have five or six years now of constant Star Wars films, you're going to get anyone of my age group, your age group, it's going to explode again. Um, people going to be, I think a lot more people going to be collecting Star Wars stuff. Not massive collections, but just trying to pick up a a mint on card to display in their house. Maybe there's a subsidiary market there for things like beta figures in acrylic cases and stuff. People will actually have them as ornaments on their on their sideboards. I think you've got to get a lot of collecting on a different level where people aren't interested in how mint they are, just as, as long as they look okay. And you're, you're going to have the real serious collectors who are going out there trying to find those rare card backs of foreign stuff. Um, I, think you, I think it's going to explode and get worse. Um, I don't think it's going to, going to dip again because... Disney are going to force Star Wars down your throats uh, for the next at least 15 years, I think. Because we'll have this trilogy, then we'll have we'll have standalone films, and we'll have an entire generation grown up, and we'll still have people in their 50s and 60s who were there at the start who will be still trying to collect stuff. So I think prices only get bigger and bigger, I'm afraid. And people's collections, like Richard said, will change. 
and also in time you'll you won't go after you know the whole range of car backs you'll go after a figure range you'll go after you know a variant range and that'll be it i just don't i, I think it is not for millionaires but for people who have got more disposable income than 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 most hey you your, your point there, you say, oh, it's going to go up because of Disney, but isn't it the fact that um, prices are high at the moment because a lot of people are sitting on their cards, not selling, and they're going to sell them when Episode 7 comes out? There may be, there's going to be too many um, on the market and the price will be forced down anyway. I don't know, because remember, there's, I mean, card backs are changing a little bit because, I mean, you've got people who are doing stupid things like getting them graded and stick it to a credit box to, to sell for that collector's range. I think there are still people out there who are just... I'm not sure whether people are sitting on them. Um, I, I guess there'd be a certain amount of that waiting for the explosion to happen a bit more. Um, I, I think the price is only, only going to go up, and then you'll just get. I mean, as we've seen, you know, car backs aren't aren't lasting the the, the time either. I mean, they're getting destroyed in the post. They're they're getting U graded. All sorts of bad things happening to them. I just think it's going to get wider and wider spread, and less and less will come available. I think it's just going to. I don't think the explosion has happened yet, personally. I think that will happen. If the next film is good, and I mean really good, and it absolutely fires people up, I think you're going to get a bigger explosion for vintage Star Wars figures. Yeah, but that's what I was about to say. You could have it exactly the same other way, that uh, it could be a disappointment for the old vintage collectors. It could be like the Phantom Menace again, and the only people that are really, really enjoy the new films are the new generation, which will be buying the new figures. It is, but I think because of Star Wars, it's going to be kept in the public... I think I think when it, when it disappeared, then it became a different market because it's ne- it's now got a, f- a long term future on various various levels. Um, I think the, the the outlook for the old figures because of remember it's people of my I say people of my age, yeah, you know, we're we're the ones who have grown up with that disposable income because we were there watching the films in the in the eighties and now we've got that cash to go and buy stuff that maybe not wasn't the case in the nineties <clears throat> when I mean I was what you know in the twenties or whatever and you you were looking at you look at the things and go, I can't really, couldn't really afford that. Now, people can afford it. I don't know, it's, it's I think it, it's not settled yet, believe me. I think the next film, next couple of films are going to send it in a different direction. I think um, part of the problem as well is that modern life encourages instant gratification because so many things these days are available so easily. If someone puts something up for, I don't know, a ridiculous amount of money and somebody wants it they're not willing to wait they're used to getting everything that they want instantly they can just do it whether it's uh, too expensive or not they just they'll just um someone will sort of think well why should i wait it's there it's available and i want it and pay well over the odds for it and then everybody that's got one thinks wow it's worth now double what it was two years ago this question has zero context and um i was going to ask you this guy uh, this question in 15 months time I'll ask it now anyway. Are any of you going to buy um, an Episode 7 Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Princess Leia figure? I've often thought about that. I mean, just imagine if this film is amazing. It's like, it's like Empire Strikes Back amazing. Are you guys going to be like, oh, well, might as well buy the whole new range? You could quite easily get swept up in the, uh, <laughs> in, the in the moment like, like the Phantom Menace. And just think, yeah, and uh, yeah, who, who knows? It's one of those things, until you see those figures on the old pegs, do you know what? If they release a small-headed hand and then change it to a large-headed hand, mate, I think I might be buying a, paying a, a massive premium on those brand new figures. I think I will, Grant. I think I, I think I'll, I'll get something because I mean, I, Mark, I, I, I a Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, Jedi Master figure. Yeah. I mean, exactly. it was never going to happen, and now it's going to happen. I, I, I'm going to buy it. I can't. Yeah, I think, I'm going to buy it. 
I think that's the issue, isn't it? It's the characters from the original trilogy that we grew up with are suddenly going to be back as the figures again, not those new things. But you want to be a completist, though, won't you? And you want to have the whole range of anything Luke Skywalker or Princess Leia or or Chewbacca or whatever. And you, and I think you will. I think you, any Star Wars fan will. I think I'm sure everyone will buy something, even if it's only just a token. You'll want to own it. What about an Ewok wearing Stormtrooper uniform? Oh, that would be awesome. A Jedi Ewok. The Ewoks might all have Stormtrooper helmets now because of how many dead were in the um, Endor. Oh, oh yeah. You've had to cover a bit of, um, bit of plot there, Grant. So, going back onto Grant's question, Ark and Categorically State now, I will not purchase any Episode 7 figures uh, until they've been discounted to the bargain shops and if they're around the £2 mark, I think I'll pick some up then. There's no way on earth I'm going to be paying £7.99, £8.99, whatever they're going to charge for a loose figure that I know will be worth pennies um, within about a year or two. We'll see. We'll see. Watching now, I'll see him in Midnight Madness in Newcastle, 12 o'clock, <laughs> outside Toys R Us, peeing into his hand because he doesn't want to get out of the queue. He does it anyway. I do that to get in the queue. Do you know, I, I, I bought all of the Phantom Menace figures and I bought the Attack of Clones figures the days, the days that they came out. Um, I wised up by the time Revenge of the Sith came around and I can't believe I'm going to do it again. Just well, do it, Grant, and shut up. Yeah, just do it now. <laughs> Sit um, down, shut up, buy the figures. Hey, the can we all get together in a big sandbox, you know, put on some Speedos and sit there and play Star Wars? I'd do that anyway. I didn't buy any of the Episode 1 figures, 2 or 3, uh, up until recently where I think I've put a um, wanted episode one card of figures for £2 and I managed to pick up about 20 and I'm just quite happy. I couldn't care if I don't pick another one up for three years. I'll, I'll get them at £2 and I- I'm sure the same will happen with episode seven figures. Hey, Rich, do you want the... Um, I've got a shop display, the Comtech chip shop display, the green one, where you scan the figure on the card over the display and it tells you the, the audio on it. Not interested. I'm a loose collector, Grant. Actually, Rich, if we're going down that line, I've actually got a 1997 Power of the Force hanger display as well, if you're, if you're interested. £50 to you. Which, which one is that? Which one is that, Steve? Is it the one with Darth Vader? Darth Vader's head, yeah. And yeah, I've got that. I've got an interesting story about that. I'll tell you another time. It involves the police. The next one right. was a thread in the off-topic section. It was called Star Wars Rebels New TV Show, and it was started... Well, I thought, remember, I'm not familiar with Morse 79. Grant, you've been looking at this one? Yes, mate. I just thought that um, we never choose anything from the off-topic section for obvious reasons, but this is, um, this is something new and unique and maybe won't happen that often as we're doing this podcast, and that's a new Star Wars animated television show. Uh, it's coming up on Disney XD on October 13th. Uh, it was first revealed properly at Star Wars Celebration Europe 2 back in July last year. Rich, I don't know if you attended that panel with uh, Dave Filoni. I did. It was absolutely brilliant. It was, um, wasn't it? Yeah, the concept art, it was, everybody came out with their super excited. When they showed that Star Destroyer, everyone went nuts. And, you know, is it toy related? Well, the Imperial Troop Transporter from the uh, the first lot of, Stuff that came out from Kenner back in 1978. Do you know the one which has got the the recorded voices on there? And you can put the figures in the side. Yep. Yeah. The rest of you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah. Yes, Grant. Yes. Oh, very good. Well, they've um, that's going to be in the show. So there's like a, a nod and a wink to you know the us older 
Star Wars fans, Generation 1 fans. So they've put that in the show, which I thought was really interesting. And um, the TIE Fighters, even though they're based on the Ralph Macquarie design, they've got the same sort of size and specifications as the, the old Kenner TIE Fighters, which I thought was interesting as well. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Are, are you guys looking forward to it? Oh yes, definitely. I was a big fan of Clone Wars. Um, been watching all the previews for it. Um, I think they got some good characters this time as well. They've actually yeah. had a bit of a spread of... I know that there's always silly pressure on about female characters, but it does add something when you've got a bit more diversity to the, to the mix. You get better storylines. You can do different things rather than just a bunch of old blokes wandering around the universe. Yeah, I think they've got a good mixture. And the fact that they are doing a lot of nods. And I mean, it's a, it's a deliberate push, isn't it, from Disney to, to really get into the craw of vintage fans. You know, there's so many little nods to stuff that, that in the original trilogy, in toys, in everything. I mean, they, I mean this is a marketing push to try and get uh, us to buy Episode 7 figures, let's face it. That's what it's there for, is to get us all enlivened again in the, in the series. But, yeah, I, I, I really can't wait. There is one thing that is, is worth mentioning, is that there is going to be a movie that comes out first that, so that will set us up for the series. So, you know, I don't know if you're going to count that within the, you know, the seven films and the Clone Wars film, but there is going to be a movie, I think, to, that kicks it off. Uh, ben, are you psyched for Rebels? I'm a bit ambivalent, to be honest with you. I, I will watch it, but um, I'm not really getting that excited about it. I don't, don't know why, but... Um, have you watched the um, previews? Uh, I've, yeah, I have seen a couple of them, but I'm not really... I don't know, just at the moment it's not doing it. Nope. Okay, Stu... No. Yeah, I can't wait. I think it looks brilliant. Been looking at the previews. Uh, it's like a good set of characters. Yeah, can't wait. Yeah, I love that um, the video that they released with Hera. I think it's called, and they're doing the. Uh, it's like reenacting the escape from the Death Star from Episode Four, and you've got like you know the pacing is there, the music's there, the humour. Phenomenal! I got goosebumps from watching it, and that's probably the first time I've had goosebumps for new Star Wars. I don't know, nearly thirty years. I thought it was uh, amazing. Uh, Rich, are you in line for this one? Massively. I'm not so sure that the first one's a film, though, Grant. I think it's more of an extended first episode or perhaps the first two episodes stitched together. I would class it as a movie. But I went to see um, the Clone Wars movie in the cinema with my son, and although I enjoyed it, I was a bit disappointed. But I was very disappointed with the Clone Wars first season or so, mainly because Ahsoka just got on my nerves. And I know a lot of people changed their mind about Ahsoka once Ashley Eckstein came on podcasts and started giving interviews and all of a sudden Ahsoka uh, was absolutely amazing and everybody loved that character. I, I still found it really annoying. So to link that into Rebels, I'm worried about Ezra. I think he's just going to come across too much as a, a spoiled brat team with some special powers. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm super excited to, to see Rebels mainly because of the ships and the Imperials, as long as they don't mess the Stormtroopers up too much. Um, I want to see the Imperial officers, I want to see people walking on Star Destroyers, um, Imperial captains. Um, I'm not so fussed on the rebel characters myself. Do you know what's going to be interesting though is that, you know, it is a, a time of oppression. So it's going to be interesting to see if you're going to be able to have that Disney-fied humour and that glossiness at the same time as having, you know, quite a brutal, oppressive, you know, environment. One other thing, just just in closing as well, you've got the main ship, which is the Ghost. It has a small ship attached to it, which is called the Phantom. And it kind of reminded me of the freight-loading external rover that was in the pre-production Power of the Force K-9 
Kenner line from 1985 to 1986. It was like a, a small vehicle that was going to attach between the two prongs on the front of the Millennium Falcon. And I thought, I wonder if it, there's a link there between the, you know, the Phantom and that pre-production uh, Kenner Powers of Force uh, prototype. But, you know, I guess we'll find out. And the final thread for this month's form roundup was put up by Skywalker. And it was entitled Yoda with a 60-a-day habit. Peter? Yes. Wow. Well, I think we've already discussed this in part on this podcast. But um, your Star Wars figure, if you don't keep it in a lovely, lovely environment, is going to go yellow eventually. doesn't matter how hard you try, it's going to go yellow. Unless you have a room and only have inert gases in that room, um, oxidization and UV light, doesn't matter how you keep it they will affect it and it's really really gutting that's going to happen so somebody needs to invent a chamber <laughs> that you can put in a room that will keep these inert gases on the figure and away from oxidization and ultraviolet rays it's gutting i mean that that was that's the worst i've ever seen anything i mean that was like if you if, if you were to find some rubbish tipped over the side of a uh, I don't know, a caravan site or something, something really tacky, and you still saw some old plastic bottles, it was as yellow as those would be after about 10 years of out in the sun. You can hardly see Yoda on the figure. It's just incredible. I, I've never seen it like that at all on a, on a supposedly well-kept action figure. It's just amazing, but it's, it's the inevitable decay of, of, of any toys. I mean, these things weren't designed to last. Uh, they were designed to be put in shops, keep the figure safe, uh, be ripped off the car pretty quickly and easily, and the figures to be played with, they weren't designed to be kept as as uh, museum pieces. So, I don't know what you guys think about this. Grant, how many of your uh, your uncarded figures have yellowed? Uh, mine aren't too bad, mate, to be honest with you. I did have a Zuckus that uh, exploded out of the bubble, and I had an issue with uh, a Weequay figure. You know, it's normally the Return of the Jedi uh, Kenner figures and the um, Out of the Force ones and the Droids ones, uh, Ewoks ones as well, that normally have the problems. But, yeah, mine seem, mine seem uh, pretty pretty fine. Nothing compared to that Yoda. I've never seen... It's like as if someone actually just painted the bubble brown. It is. It is incredible. I mean, I wonder if... I mean, it seems like uh, the, 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 there's a little bit of a... I mean, I know, obviously, the, the, the original Star Wars figures, or the original 12 and 21 or whatever, are more rarer, but it does seem that some of the, the later ones, maybe the materials changed in the coating and the, the additives of bubbles. It, it, it does appear that there are more issues with those than rather than some of the earlier ones. I mean, I know that, that everything is going to yellow eventually, but it does seem like, we, especially on um, Ewoks, there seems to be a lot of yellowed bubbles appearing on Ewoks and Return of the Jedi sort of figures. I thought you think, Rich, how many, how many have you got in your collection, Rich? Carded figures. Um, the the uh, last count I had zero. Oh, Rich, that's just no fun. Ben, hey. you must have loads and loads of horrible yellowed figures in your collection. What makes you say that? I don't know, you just kind of get me as a guy who loves that sort of thing. No, I'm not massively keen on yellow bubbles, but I do like Power of the Force. Oh, I'm trying to put together a bit of a run of the last 15 um, that I can power of the force and with those in particular it's something you have to live with by the time they were producing the bubbles for those they're notoriously bad for going yellow it's quite interesting that certain bubbles don't go yellow and that's one of the big appeals of trilogo cards whatever plastic they use to make those they don't seem to be affected by it at all Stuart if you had any yellow bubbles in your card and stuff would you get rid of them or would you keep them the only I have I have got um a yellowed bubble on an 8, 8D8 and uh, he's in a pretty poor way and 
I've had him a little while now and he's starting to crack as well. It's obviously gone really brittle and he's cracking quite badly. I'm afraid of even moving that he's in, would, that, in that bad would, state. Would you consider taking him out and putting him in have a nice little vinyl case? No, no, not until he no. did it himself. <laughs> no, but I mean, if it starts to really crack up, I mean, that plastic will eventually just shatter. I mean, there's no, there's no uh, way of stopping it. If I, if I send you a photo of it, it's probably got 20-odd cracks on it now. And they've come yeah. literally in the space for about a year. Yeah, he's, he's, he's in a star case laying down in a box somewhere. Because if you've ever seen a plastic, or you ever put a plastic bag at your loft and left it there for like 10 years, and you, and you go back up to visit it, <laughs> normally it's in pieces, it looks like a rat's been through it. But that's what happens, it just falls to pieces. And I would assume that that's going to be the, the way that plastic bubbles will eventually happen. I mean, it would take a while because they're, they're still reasonably thick in comparison to, to like a plastic bag, but they will, they will just fall apart if you don't keep them in good condition. I mean, they have to be. I think you think you're going to have a new industry starting up in the next 10 years. It's going to be people who are having uh, specialist rooms built with certain conditions in them to keep <laughs> Star Wars action figures in their, their cards and bubbles, which is a bit of a shame, really, but that's sadly the, the way that the... Uh, the packaging industry works, really. But there we go. Uh, ben just said there that uh, tri-logo bubbles didn't suffer from yellowing, but they do, Ben. It's just that they're a different kind of plastic, so with different plastics, the yellowing's going to be different, but there are certainly plenty of yellow tri-logo bubbles out there, and as time passes by, we're going to see more and more. The future of all bubbles is yellow. It, it, it's inevitable. It can't happen. And it goes right back to what I said at the very first episode of our show. It's going to come a time where you won't be able to post carded figures. Um, and I know Ed's put on the forum many different ways of packaging them with elastic bands and tin foil and, I don't know, f- fake lips and boob implants and all sorts. I've seen everything you can think of. But it's going to come a time where you, can't, you won't be able to post them because they are all going to damage. Yeah, I think I'll post that thing from, from uh, Smithers Pyra about how any package will get treated by a courier at the very, very least. So if you can drop a... If you can drop it about a metre and then roll it around a bit, that, that's how it's going to get treated. So a, a, a very fragile bubble will not last in, in the post. It just won't. I mean, I think anyone's mad to post it now. I don't think it's 30, 30 odd years old. It's just, it's just, a, it's, it's, it's just, it, it's probably 50 50 whether it's going to break or not. So, and, and that's why, that's kind of one of the very small reasons I don't collect any carded figures um, in, from the vintage stuff because. I mean, it's just that's just going to happen. Ruin your collection one day. You'll wake up and it'll be <laughs> a lot of stuff on the floor, bits of plastic everywhere, and lots of figures sitting out there. A lot of money down the drain. Do Do you know if um, that sold on eBay? Because he's got he had it up for a hundred and fifty dollars, didn't he? And I know he had three rejected or declined offers. It got relisted. I don't know whether it got actually happened again. Hang on, I've got what, it up here. Got a lot of money for something that you can't actually see physically see the figure, can you? Um, it's still up. It's uh, it's got a day and twenty hours to run. Um, it's still at one hundred and fifty bucks, and it's got six watches on it. So he's uh, he's trying it again. Right. So I think that's about it for this month's forum roundup. Right now, let's go over to Rich for this month's boom story. Well, this month's boom story has um, been changed at the last minute um, due to some information that's appeared on Facebook and on the stores from UK and the sellers to avoid thread. And it links into the events section where I 
discussed meeting a dealer at Sheffield Comic Con. And as I mentioned on there, he was selling some mint on card and some boxed items. Uh, it was quite pricey, but, it, you know, it was what it was. And he had his prices there for everyone to see. And, you know, you, you either bought it or you didn't. So just some prices that I can remember was a Boba Fett that was boxed. With, uh, he wanted £400 for that. He had three boxed Wampas and he wanted £80 each for them. I think one of them was a buy logo box, which he was particularly proud of. There were many Empire Strike Back uh, mint on cards. Most of them created after 80 and he wanted around about £220-£240 each for those. Uh, there was an Empire Strike Back X-Wing, which I think was a 31 back, and he wanted £210 for that. There was a Cloud Car City player set, which was beautiful, it was sealed, and he wanted quite a lot of money for that. I think that may be in £400-£450. So, uh, and from talking to him, he was a, an old-school collector, he was out of the loop, as I, as I already mentioned um, in the event section. And he, he got his prices based on what he found on eBay, on finished sales, etc., etc. And he made it very, very clear that he was not willing to budge on prices. He wanted £80 for a want-back, you paid £80 for a want-back. It's, it's as simple as that. And as far as I was concerned, good on him. But I was there quite a lot with him throughout the day, and I didn't see him make a single sale at all. He probably wasn't that bothered about it. I mean, all he had to sell was probably one item and he would have covered all of his fees, etc. At, at the prices he was charging. So anyway, a couple of photographs of his stall appeared on Stores Forum UK and also on one of the Facebook pages. As expected, a lot of people said, oh, there's some quite nice items on there. How can we get in contact with this guy to find out the prices that he was offering? And this is where I think the problem comes from. As I already mentioned, he is an old school collector. He was very traditional. Depending on who you ask, he's either selling up completely or he's selling his doubles. And when I was speaking to him, he certainly did not give me the impression he was selling up completely. He was just changing his focus, downsizing, getting rid of his lot of doubles, etc., etc., trying to raise some funds. Bizarrely, and for whatever reason, his email address and phone number were posted on Facebook with a message um, along the lines of, if you want to discuss these items, just get in contact with me. And, and I'd be very surprised if he gave permission for that to happen. Or if he did give permission for that to happen, because he's an old school collector, I just don't think he realised what he was doing. So, as expected, many guys texted him, emailed him, called him on his mobile, asked him about his items, asked for prices, etc., etc. And and I'm led to believe, and he certainly did this at um, Sheffield, he refused uh, a lot of the discounts. And some guys were going on there and saying, mm, you know, a little bit pricey, but... I certainly know that Carl Easter had agreed a deal for either four or six mint on cards. I can't remember the, the total number. And one or two other, two other guys had agreed deals. And then all of a sudden, there was a, a lot of text going out saying, that's it, no more, I'm not selling, I'm fed up. Quite a lot of bad language used in there. And regardless of his reason, I think a lot of this has been totally unnecessary. And he just said, due to low ball offers, I am not doing any deals and I'm only going to sell at conventions. So that's obviously upset a lot of people by saying, oh, you know, how can you come on here with these selling ethics? You're not doing, you won't do deals, etc., etc." And personally, what I think this is, I think this is two cultures clashing. He said many times he's an old school collector. Now, yes, old school collectors would have been used to haggling face to face. But he, straight from the off, was I do not do, give discounts. And he's come up against the Facebook, the new collector mentality, the low ball collector mentality. And, and I've had it many times. I'll give you two examples of low balls I've had recently. The Palatoy time capsule. I had the, the first 12 figures with the weapons, with the scrapbooks, 
um, with a few other items, and one guy offered us £50, which I thought was absolutely disgusting. Had a value of quite a few different people at around about the £200 mark. And the four, four die-cast vehicles and ships out of the Palatoid time capsule. There was a Millennium Falcon, there was a TIE Fighter, there was a Landspeeder, and I really can't remember the fourth one off the top of my head, but there was four of them, and one guy offered £1.50 each. £1.50. I thought it was outrageous. So this guy must have been getting bombarded on his mobile with ridiculously low offers. And he's just got annoyed. It's as simple as that. So what the hell are these guys playing at? He's basically said too many people have took the piss and that's it. Yes, some people said throw his toys out his pram. Okay, we'll use that. He's thrown his toys out the pram. Okay, he's cancelled all deals. And unfortunately, guys like Cardi Star and um, one or two other guys who'd had trades put in place, they've now lost those trades. They're, they're gone. And I think Carl asked him for a discount. Now, Carl was buying, just see, if, even if it was only four mint on cards, he, he'd agree to buy four mint on cards. Each one was around about £220 mark, so it was £880 worth of mint on cards he'd looking to buy. Now, I have no problem whatsoever in him asking for a discount. I think that's totally acceptable. You know, he's, 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 he's putting a lot of cash out, and, you know, is there any chance of coming to a deal for buying four mint on cards? That, that, that's good. That's, that's bartering, that's haggling, that's, that's a good strategy. But... It would not surprise me in the slightest if somebody had put a bid in of about 50 quid for one of his mint on cards. It wouldn't surprise us. And for me, it's no wonder this guy's got angry. It's a clash of old school versus new school. And I think a lot of the newer collectors need to realise that by sending these insult and low ball offers, these are the consequences that can't happen. It happens on the forums all the time. It happens on Facebook. And if anybody deals with me, by all means, I, I, I agree to discounts, and I've discounted many items for many people. But low-ball offers, they just don't even deserve a response. And, and, and personally, I think this guy, guy got fed up. Any comments? I think it's up to the prerogative of the, of the seller to sell whatever they want. I think probably it's just the intensity of the uh, amount of contact he had might have been a massive turn-off there. Because if, you know, if someone offers you £5 for a £10 figure, you could just say no. So you, you think it's volume, and I think that's probably quite right, Grant, because if I stuck my mobile number up on Facebook, or even the Star Wars Forum UK, and said, there's my mobile number, these are the items I've got for sale, you know, please make me an offer, I am going to get bombarded from many people who never post, people who just watch the sales threads, I'm going to get bombarded with it. So I think he was incredibly naive in giving his mobile number out, and giving it out either knowing or not knowing that it was going to be posted online. But it's interesting what you said there, Grant. I think it's right. It's, it's the seller who's determining the price. A lot of buyers think they've got a God-given right to get discounts, and you haven't. You, you don't have any right. If I'm putting something for sale for £100, okay, that's my that's what I want. I want £100. I put it up for sale for £100. Yes, we may agree, you know, through negotiation, through gesture of goodwill, through a trade, through good history, through good community relations, Okay, we may agree to discount it, but you don't have that right. Yeah, there's a few uh, things here, which uh, uh, or a few points here about buying and selling that I think I know, sometimes I get a little bit lost. Firstly, when you're buying or selling anything, it's it's simple economics. It's only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. So you can sell any given item, or you can put a price on any given item that you want. That's that's your prerogative as a seller, absolutely. And if somebody wants to pay that price, they can pay it. If someone doesn't want to pay that price, you're never ever going to sell it. 
yeah, pe- people are trying to get these items dirt cheap for whatever reason, whether they're looking to hang on to them and resell them at a later date or whether they think the seller's a little bit naive. Unfortunately, where there's money, there's always a little bit of this sort of uh, shenanigans. I do understand the seller as well, basically, having had enough of it. I think you're right. I think if you put a mobile phone number on a sales thread or a sales forum, you've got to expect people are going to contact you that way. If you don't want that, put an email address up, open an email account with Gmail just for your buying and selling, and if it gets too much for you, you can just turn it off. It's the the, the wonderful world of buying and selling on a forum, I think. Yeah, just to respond to that, Ben, uh, I just want to clarify that he did not put his email or phone number out. Another guy did that, apparently with permission. But going back to your point there, Ben, about it's only worth what something somebody's willing to pay, I, I do agree with that, but he was not in a hurry to sell. You know, a bit like um, our friend Toy Tony down in Snoopers Paradise. He puts items in that cabinet at a price, okay, and he's happy them sitting there and sitting there and sitting there until somebody comes out and buy, buys them. And I think that's the same with this guy. He stated these prices, he's going to do conventions, he was at Sheffield, so there's, there's others local to the area, he's going to do conventions, and if he was after a quick seal, then he would have agreed these deals. You know, he made it very, very clear, no discounts. If, you, if you're displaying your wares online, if you're flashing your flesh at people, people are just going to have a bite. I mean, if you put anything public on the internet, like, like your, your email, like uh, your, your phone number, people are just going to abuse it. So you've got to be a bit more savvy. I mean, I'm not saying that this person did that, but um, if you are trying to, if, if you've got stuff for sale, people are always going to just send in stupid offers to you. So you have to be wary. You can't get upset about. Even if you're, um, I mean, if you've done a car, ever done a car boot sale, people just come along and offer you 50p for stuff that that is <laughs> worth 20 times the amount. That's just the way the world works. I mean, I wish people were something a bit, bit sensitive about it. Yes, you get low board, bad luck. If you're trying to sell stuff. You know, you might get a really, really good, good deal somewhere. I mean, it's just inevitable that this sort of thing's going to happen. I mean, the internet is full of idiots. We, we all know that, and and they swarm around these groups, Facebook groups especially. Uh, thankfully, there's not as many on the forum apart from us lot. But uh, you just got to you got to man up a bit, really. If I'm actually honest with you, man up. Yeah, I I, I think this is the the problem of he hasn't realised the power of Facebook and social media and if he has given permission for his mobile to go out there, I just think he's culturally unaware of the consequences of that. Grant, have you got any comments? The first comment I have, it kind of reminds me of Andrew uh, from Scotland who came on the forum about two years ago and he went up to his attic and he had all those Trilogo last 16, he had, you know, the Yak face, the Leohoff, you know, almost a full set of Trilogo carded figures. It became apparent then that he wasn't aware of the uh, uh, the kind of magnitude of what would happen if you published these photos onto a forum and I remember he got inundated with you know hundreds of emails and he was quite overwhelmed by it and had to uh, had to take a step back and have a bit of a breather you know maybe we could have this discussion for another time but there seems to be this unwritten code of ethics when it comes to buying and selling and as great as that is I, I think it's up to the seller you know, I mean, the best deal that you would have, really, from an impartial point of view, is that the seller is happy and the buyer is happy. Now, that's not going to happen if you get a bargain, where the buyer is only going to be happy. It'd be interesting to go into things like if I say that I want that power droid figure, and I send a, a message to the dealer and say I want to have the power droid figure, and then a day later or a few hours later, someone else says I want the power droid figure, and I find that even though I posted first. I've been undercut, and the you know the sellers decided to go with 
with someone else. The kind of issues and problems that that, that serves up as well, I think that's something that maybe we could look into another boom story. But I think it's just a, you know, it's a, a, maybe it's a little naive on the dealer's part, you are, I mean, I've just had a look at the photographs and those pieces are fantastic and yeah, he is going to get inundated with loads and loads and loads of emails and messages and phone phone calls for those pieces. What do you think about maybe, you know, unless another boom story comes up, but we should have a discussion sometimes about buying and selling FX. Yeah, uh, I totally agree with you, Grant. I think there, there are two that I can think of that's really annoying. That you, You're right in what you've said. Well, actually, no, I'm going to go for three now. Three incidents that's happened and it happened fairly frequently is one is where you put PM cent on whatever, and then somebody below you puts PM, PM cent on whatever, and then they, they get accepted and you lose out. That, that, that's a pain in the arse. Another one that's happened to me quite a few times is I put, say if a guy's offering five items, and you put PM cent on item one, somebody below you puts PM cent on items one, three, and five, and then because they want one, three, and five, they get them in a lot, and you've lost item one. That, that's, that's annoying. And another one is where somebody sticks something online you respond like within seconds and then the you find out it's been sold to a pm you know and sometimes i think hold on a second you've only just posted it i've put underneath it you know pm sent on whatever but you're telling me that in between that somebody's already pm'd you i don't think so you know like you've got another problem there is say if I, i've got a gamorian guard for sale yeah and franz from sweden has told me like oh i'll, I'll be interested in that figure and then one of you guys, a day later, says, Grant, I, I really want that figure. What do I do now? Yeah. Uh, ethically, I should just go with, hey, this guy's from Sweden. Now, it's going to be a ball ache for me to find out the postage and packaging for this Gamorian guard to Sweden. And you guys, who I'm either flying halfway around the world with or spending all, you know, hours and hours talking to on a daily basis, does that mean it's now I'm going to screw over that guy? I mean, that's just the same as choosing who you sell to on a PM cent, is it not? Yeah, that's a good point. That Grant, that's that's something I'd have to put a bit of thinking in. I think in that situation, what I would probably do, I would probably say to you guys, look, I've got something to sell, but, but that's where the inner circle get accused of doing, don't they? Like somebody's got a rare prototype, and they'll go, guys, I'm going to stick this prototype on Rebel Score within the next three days, and yet you, you never see those items, do you? Well, should we, should we discuss it another time? Yeah, definitely. Now, you end up making a network of, of of friends selecting, and you're more inclined to to sell to them. Um, and you're also probably more inclined, if you're honest, to give them a bit of discount if they ask. Paul, like when you I want mean, a um, jowl, well, Grant. Yeah. 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 Or he sells it to some Mancunian he's never ever met before, Sorry, just... wandering around a hall. Um, no. I, I don't know. <laughs> of all the people to come out with that comment, Ben. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Yes and no. Ba- basically, basically, basically. <laughs> popular movie in history. 
It created a fascination with space, spawned an entire category of merchandise, and many say was the inspiration for the video game phenomenon. The remarkable popularity of the Star Wars theme will continue to expand with the re-release of the first two movies and the release of the third movie, Revenge of the Jedi, scheduled for 1983. For 1982, we are introducing the first of an ongoing line of Star Wars game cartridges. Our cartridge, based on the Empire Strikes Back, recreates the thrill battle scene on the ice planet Hoth. Many of its play features and programming techniques are completely new to the market. Imperial walkers storm across a 20-screen action field. By monitoring the radar band, players scan the entire battlefield and pinpoint the approaching enemy. Players use lasers, snow speeders, and the force to stop the gigantic walkers before they destroy power generators at the rebel base. Our Star Wars cartridge combines the best of all worlds, the biggest movies of all time, the game development strength of Parker Brothers, a major advertising commitment, and compatibility with the current frontrunners in hardware systems. 1982, Parker Brothers, video, a new technology. Okay, welcome to this month's Oddball section. For episode 5, we're going to be discussing Star Wars, the computer and video games, the first 10 years from 1982 to 1992. I just want to have a quick recap uh, with some new information uh, that's come to light from previous Oddball sections. In the first episode, when we were talking about Helix, there was a a Helix ruler part that I said went for sale for around about £750 about two years ago. Well, another one has been sold on eBay. Um, it was incredibly poorly listed, and the photograph of the the ruler point-of-sale pot uh, was on the second photograph. and wasn't really listed that well, and that went for £250. So uh, someone got quite a bargain there, I feel. From the last episode, uh, Craig Stevens, who is uh, Simply Sci-Fi. Uh, Craig, we always look forward to your input on the podcast. You know, it's uh, it's always great to hear from you and uh, the fantastic information that you can you can give to us. Uh, Craig posted about you know a couple of interesting points about you know the, the diecasts that we were talking about, such as the X-wing always being the biggest one. And he uh, you know he had a good question about the um, what would the return of the Jedi. Uh, diecasts be like if they continued the line, which I thought was really exciting and really interesting. Maybe something that we can discuss at another time. Also, James Simmons also contacted us about having his picture of George Lucas printed in Return of the Jedi Weekly in issue 92. For some reason, it was the only time the saga's creator was ever included in the reader's artwork, so that was really exciting as well. So on to this month's oddballs, and we're going to focus on licensed games rather than unlicensed, and it's going to be the first 10 years. Um, we're just going to stop short, really, of the 16-bit generation and the, uh, the rise of Super Nintendo and the PC. Yeah, there was an unlicensed game that came out on cassette on the Apple computers in the late 70s. It's a space simulator where you took on TIE Fighters, but I couldn't really find any information about any of these unlicensed games, so 
straight on to 1982 and the beginning of uh, Star Wars in the home video and computer market. Okay, and on with 1982, The Empire Strikes Back for the Atari 2600. It was released by Parker Brothers. Uh, Parker Brothers really dominated the first gaming experience for Star Wars, along with Atari. Uh, Parker Brothers was a subsidiary of General Mills, so their first Star Wars license was through their parent company. Uh, Lucasfilm, or Lucasfilm licensing, I guess, at the time, wasn't convinced that Parker Brothers had the ability to release quality games. And in fact, uh, Parker Brothers staged a meeting with Lucasfilm and their team where they created a false tour to impress uh, Lucasfilm uh, to show that they had, actually had the ability to make these games, mostly by dressing their employees in white coats. Atari, the Atari 2600 was a second-generation uh, console. A version of the Atari 2600 released in 1982 was also known as the Darth Vader console because it had its sort of like a a black appearance. Uh, Empire Strikes Back was also released on the Intel Vision. How do you say that? Intellivision uh, by Mattel. Uh, the gameplay was a, a scrolling shooter that takes place during the Battle of Hoth, where the objective is to bring down the walkers before they blow up the power generator. Looking at the reviews, it seemed to be well received for its time. Uh, what did you guys think of it? <laughs> it's really difficult, isn't it? Because you've got to put yourself back to 1983. But if I had this game in 1983, my mind would have been absolutely blown away just seeing those um, attacks coming on the screen. I would have just been mesmerised by it. I would have been about six, seven years old at the time. And I, I would just imagine myself playing for hours and hours and hours. Even, the, you know, the, the sounds were pretty good as well for something so early on. Yeah, I think I think that that's probably the most important point whilst looking at these old games to be honest with you, is you have to go back to those times. And I know that I was desperate back then to reenact the Battle of Hoth. And in fact, we had to wait really till Shadows of the Empire in 1996 to really fulfill that dream. But um, it's difficult to play it now and, and go back. And, uh, you know, I've, I've gone back and played a few of these Atari games and, you know, they haven't aged well at all. They're not that playable at all. But, yeah, I, I was actually desperate for this, uh, the Battle of Hoth back then. What about you, Pete? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm Mr. Old Man, so uh, I can remember when, when, when uh, having a ZSD1 was the height of computing, and when we had things like uh, consoles coming around, my mate had the Atari 2600 over the road, because his annoying friends and family would buy him stuff from the States and whatever. And I remember seeing this game, and it was going from a ZSD1 to program your own games in, to having this thing, where there were sounds and noises, and it almost looked like graphics. I mean, you, you can't, it, it was like going from a, a Spectrum to a, to a Mega to a PC. It was it was a huge step up. Um, the game was, I mean, like, like the, going back and playing the game, it's absolutely garbage. It's just, just got no depth to it at all. It's just it's just <laughs> going around at that, shooting them, and then moving on to another at that, and shooting that one. And then, I mean, it's awful, really, but at the time, you know, moving graphics on screen with colour, with sound, was, you know, state-of-the-art. It really was state of the art. I, I can't, I can't like convey how amazing it was. I mean, I remember there was about five of us around this guy's house going, "Whoa, look at that! It's amazing!" Uh, dreaming of having that console, but never got it. Now, can I can I ask you guys? Because I don't actually remember much of the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. I mean, it was all Spectrum, Amstrad, and Commodore when I was, you know, in the early eighties. Do you guys remember the Atari 2600, or was it just massive in America? We had one in my house. I didn't have any of the Star Wars games. Yeah, but we had one. 
Just play it all the time. Great, great games, but I didn't have any Star Wars stuff on it. Yeah, it's famous for things like, uh, you know, Space Invaders and Pac Man yeah. and Frogger and stuff like that. Yeah, um, exactly right. Original arcade game, really. <clears throat> yeah, I'd agree with you. Space Invaders, uh, Defender, and all that kind of stuff were the main games on there. So, what's interesting, I found uh, whilst researching this, is it does seem like these video and computer games came in brackets where you had sort of like the Parker Brothers period, then you had the Atari arcade period, and then you had sort of like the Nintendo period. So, there's, you know, there is there's specific areas in the, the chronological time period of these games where you can easily split them up. Now, Empire Strikes Back isn't much of a collectible, even though it's the first Star Wars game. It's quite mad, actually, that the first Star Wars game is Empire and not a Star Wars game. I mean, you, there's there's a graded one which got an 80 that I saw go on eBay for 45 pound, um, but you can get them in, you know in good condition with the box, anywhere from five to 20 pound. Uh, for people who are much more interested in finding out more about how, the role of Parker Brothers, there, if you go on AtariMania.com and look up the Star Wars games, there's interviews there with people like a gentleman by the name of Rex Bradford who actually designed uh, these games. So check that out on AtariMania.com. Next up, 1983, the year of Return of the Jedi, and uh, the first game to be released was Death Star Battle, also on the Atari 2600, released by Parker Brothers. It came out on the Atari 2600, Atari 520, the Atari 8-bit, and the ZX Spectrum. The game has two stages where you fly the Millennium Falcon and attempt to get to the uh, Death Star shields and then attack the Death Star that looks like a disco ball. didn't actually know this one existed for the longest time. I've just picked it up, actually, on the Spectrum. Uh, what do you guys think of it? Have you seen this one? Yeah, the, the Death Star Battle game, I think what it's what that game's done is it, it's taken one of the popular formats from um, Space Raiders in Pong and that kind of game, where it's essentially a top-down game where you're, you're the Millennium Falcon, which, you know, it, it could just be Pac-Man on his side, couldn't it? And uh, you're trying to break down the wall to get the Death Star. And it, it's just taken that popular format, hasn't it, to try and um, uh, blow the Death Star at the end. I, I wasn't impressed with that game at all. I just, I didn't rate it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's largely been forgotten as well. I mean, it, it's, uh, if I'd known that as a kid, that there was a, a game that reenacts a space fight at the end of the Center of the Jedi, it would have been all over it. But obviously the quality of the game, it's really the Star Wars name that is carrying that game, because if you called it anything else, no one would no one would even know or care about it. But yeah, it's uh, it's not the best. But you know, you can pick up a sealed version for the Atari 400 for about £42. But you know, open copies usually go for about £15, and you can get the cassette version on the Spectrum for a pound. So yeah, you can treat yourself. But you're, you're bang on right about that, Grant, that the Star Wars name did carry a lot of these games. Because certainly when I was younger, I would... Every time a Star Wars game appeared, I went and bought it. I knew nothing about the game. I just knew I would love it and I knew I would enjoy it. But that's that's the one game there that um, the Death Star Battle won that I think was really weak and it was heavily relying on, on the Star Wars brand name. To be honest, I think the next game is pretty weak as well. They're also talking about 1983 where we, we go back to the first film uh, with Star Wars Jedi Arena. You are entering a battlefield of the future. The Star Wars Jedi Arena, 
Becoming a Jedi Master takes practice. Using your lightsaber, try to penetrate your opponent's defenses. But watch out! The Whirling Seeker can attack on its own! So follow your instincts. Ah, now you're ready to take on any challenger who dares to oppose you. Play the Jedi Arena home video game. Alone or head-to-head, -head, the challenge awaits you. From Parker Brothers, the ones to beat. What is interesting about this, though, is that this is the first attempt at a lightsaber, which is something I know as gamers growing up as a first-generation gamer, this is something that we've always really wanted, just like reenacting the Battle of Hoth. But, you know, unfortunately, I don't think it's possible off, and it would take quite a, quite a while for the technology to catch up to give us sort of like a satisfying experience of uh, lightsaber battles. But what do you guys think of this Jedi Arena game? I think this one is much better than this drop battle, and again, you've got to put yourself back in 1983. Yes, looking at it now, it's been enough, but as a kid back then, you're right there, it's the first um, game with the lightsaber, uh, but it's also the, the first game where you play against your friend, and I think that's something that would have been massive. Uh, two controllers, you, you as Jedi, them as Sith, you know, battling it out, I think the, the, the whole concept and, and being back there at the time would have, would have blown my mind as a kid if I had uh, one of these Ataris. And I also think the way that the setting system works on this one, whereby um, you've got the um, the little droid that's firing um, shots at you, but on the most difficult level it goes invisible, which would have been absolutely great. I could just imagine me, me as a kid just trying to think, you trying to use the force trying to predict where these invisible uh, blasts were going to come. You know, I, I think I really tried hard with this game. I think I remember playing this one um, because it was a two-player game. I think any two-player games were a hit. I mean, looking back at it now, it just looks dreadful. But, I mean, if you get two two kids playing on a console together, you've got hours of fun because it's just a, you know, just a straight competition between two people, effectively. And uh, that was always a hit because, I mean, the... Uh, they did, they did make quite a lot of games, or they, they tried to make a lot of these early games, two players or multiplayer games, but they failed quite quite often. But I remember any, anything that you had, two, two of you going at it, was always a success. And I think that's what kind of made the Atari when you were a kid, is actually to have something that you could compete with your mate on it. Because it doesn't matter what it is, you got, if you can play against a friend on a computer game, that, that's, that makes experience. You don't have to even have decent graphics, you just need something you, you can try and beat your mate at. Yeah, I think that's a good point about the Atari 2600 because you do have the multiple joystick ports, whereas the first generation of real first generation of British home computers like the Spectrum, one person would be on the keyboard and one person would be on the joysticks. Not only that, Grant. I mean, um, if you if you remember Daytons of Decathlon on the Spectrum and things like that, if you got in Brilliant. certain games like that, that yeah, yeah, which had two player modes, you actually two of you on the keyboard, so you had one on the left hand side of a Spectrum keyboard and the other person on the right-hand side of the Spectrum keyboard going at it together, smashing the crap out of, the crap of your keyboard. And it's quite... You, you, you think about that now, thinking, what on earth? But yeah, you, you actually had two players on the same device, um, which made these things ridiculous. But when you got the Atari with its two controllers, it was, it was like a, an experience <laughs> you weren't used to. It was, uh, it, was quite, it was quite luxury at the time. Mine's still going, believe it or not. Well, the, the, the one my, me and my brother bought when we sold Star Wars toys to fund it. We've still got it. There was, uh, we're going to the video game crash of 1983 now, but just before then, Parker Brothers also had two other games for Revenge of the Jedi. So these are two games that were unreleased. Uh, game one, we know, is an Ewok game, and game two is a Sarlacc game. Now, boxes of the Revenge games have made its way into collections, Game 1 video game has never been released 
but there's sort of like a, a, a production prototype that's been released, and you can actually play the game. And it seems to be based on like an Ewok glider. The adverts for the Revenge games also made it to a French magazine in November 1983. Looking at the prices and everything, the Endor game, a display box went was sold on eBay, I believe, back in 2005 for about $355. But it appears that Game 2 hasn't had any kind of gaming code or no gaming code for a surface that I could actually find. But if you go on AtariMania.com, you can actually play the prototype for Game 1. And I've seen a bootleg version of it go for about $100, but it's truly awful. There's no fantasy that I hold in flying an Ewok glider. So, uh, but yeah, in 1983, there was a video game crash. And basically, in North America, there was a massive recession in the video game industry. The revenues of video games in 1983 went from $3.2 billion to 100 million in 1985, so that's just two years, a 97% drop that damaged video gaming in America for many years to come. Uh, many of the companies that were wiped out, including Atari, um, and the industry in America basically had to wait for the Nintendo Entertainment System for any signs of resurrection. Many factors uh, to contribute to the crash, including an oversaturation of consoles and games, uh, including all different kinds of upgrades, and the high-profile disastrous titles such as the Atari 2600 version of Pac-Man and the infamous E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Um, also, growing competition from many of the powerful, more powerful home computers uh, which had faster processors and more memory like the new Commodore 64. Now, as a Brit, I was absolutely unaware of the video game crash because in 1983, for me, was the explosion of the, the British home computers where you had the, the Spectrum, the Commodore, and the Amstrad all coming into the market around about this time. And, you know, these would basically dominate every Christmas list for the next 10 years. You know, the arcades and the home computer ports would enjoy the release of some fantastic games and probably, for me, the most sentimental games for the generation Star Wars 1 fans I believe the next game is probably as iconic as a Luke Farnboy figure, and that is Star Wars uh, Arcade by Atari. Published in 1983 in the arcades, the game was a first-person shooter or a rail shooter that simulated the attack on the Death Star. The graphics were constructed out of 3D wireframe graphics, known as color vector graphics, and proved to be one of the most popular arcade games ever. Uh, the game is split into three phases. That includes a dogfight in space. The second phase, you're on the surface of the Death Star. And then on the third stage, you finally did a trench run. The arcade version game comes in two different uh, versions. You have the stand-up arcade or the incredible sit-down cockpit version. The awesome yoke control steering with the four triggers. Uh, shockingly awesome for its time. Uh, it also had the uh, some sample voices from the movie, which contained sort of Ben Kenobi, Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, R2-D2, uh, Han Solo, I think even Chewbacca's in there. 
And later in 1985, that same arcade system was converted over to the Empire Strikes Back game, which also had the color vector graphics, but this time with Wave 1 being against the Probot, Wave 2 being uh, the Battle of Hoth, getting closer to that, that dream of having an authentic Battle of Hoth experience, and the third being the Asteroid Chase. Finally, the release of Return of the Jedi came in the arcade in 1984, but this wasn't, this wasn't vector graphics. Instead, like the other two film adaptations, this instead was an isometric perspective. You jump on a speeder bike and, do, and fly through Endor up to the Ewok village, use the Falcon to get into the Death Star, and then pilot an ATSD on Endor or the Falcon to build the Star Destroyer in the final stage. All of these games are really brave, to be honest with you, considering the complexity of the material that they were trying to emulate. Uh, the original was first converted to the Atari 2600, the Atari 5200, the Atari 8-bit, ColorCovision, uh, Commodore 64, and then these games also came out in 1987 and 1988 to the Acon Electron, the ZX Spectrum, the Amstrad CPC, the Atari ST, the Amiga, the BBC Micro, Enterprise 64, Apple II, Apple Mac, and DOS, basically everything. All three games would also come back in uh, 2003 as they were an unlockable extra on the Nintendo GameCube's Rogue Squadron 3 Rebel Strike. Guys, let's talk about the Star Wars arcade experience given to us by Atari. Uh, what did you think of, first of all, Star Wars? Yeah, as you said there, that was the first vector-based um, game for Star Wars. Um, for those who aren't aware, vector-based graphics, vector-based gaming, um, it's all to do with mathematics. Um, and this game was quite complicated for the time. You know, you've got your 360-degree view, or at least 180, I don't know, um, if it's full 360. And you've got your, the complexity of the, the ships coming in from different angles. You've got your lasers shooting out, and th- there's no way that they would have been able to do that as a bit map based game. That the processing of the machines just would would not be able to cope with that. So it was quite right that they the created this in, in a vector based environment. But th- this game was absolutely awesome. W- without this game, we would not have had X Wing. We wouldn't have had the Tie Fighter games. And and what kid after watching Star Wars would not want to go straight to an arcade, push your ten Ps into this game, and just play for hours and hours and hours, blasting ties. Last in the Death Star, fantastic, and it also brought in the concept as well of, um, of shields, which which was really good, you know, because yeah. obviously if your shields went down too far, you, you'd lost you'd lost your life, and we had uh, the score as well in the in the high score table. No, it, it was absolutely brilliant. It was a fantastic game. Came out just at the right time. Did this game also have? Was this the one that had the first recording of um, sound from the movie as well? Yeah, first recording of digitized voices from films in any game. Yeah, um, I remember playing it in the arcade, and then, of course, everyone wanted to play it on their home computers. And um, it, it got totally owned on the home computer market by two versions, which was, one was called Dark Star, which is kind of similar, but an absolute carbon copy was 3D Star Strike. I think it was by Real Time Games. Um, and it was, it was um, I mean, if you play it now, we even look at the screenshots, it is a complete carbon copy, but they, they got in several years early before this actually hit the the the, you know, the the home computer market like the Amstrad and the the Spectrum and stuff I don't know whether it was a licensing issue or, or something that had happened or they didn't get their their act together but it was a total clone of the coin op so I mean, it was I mean it, it was a massive game I, I don't remember anyone who didn't have it that I knew of I and mean, it was it was just fantastic and considering how limited the Spectrum is if you think about it with 48k it was just brilliant I mean it was one it was one of the best games I, I remember we actually played it so much we actually knackered the cassette up and had to go and buy another version of it, which is quite 
unbelievable for us because we'd never bought two things the same. But uh, it really was fantastic. It was quite expensive at the time as well. It was, it was over a fiver at the time, which would have been a lot of car washing and selling of <laughs> more Star Wars figures to buy it. It was just incredible. But then I think about 87, uh, they actually bought the, the proper licensed version out, which is, yeah. if you think about it, was a long time after Star Wars had kind of ended. And, and uh, I mean, I don't know how, how well it did, but it, I, I don't think it did that well, simply because it kind of missed the boat a bit. What do you think, though, with... Because um, I was a bit disappointed by Return of the Jedi, because I thought the opportunity there to have a vector graphics version of Return of the Jedi would have been awesome, and the isometric version I didn't really... Return of the Jedi just a little bit disappointing. What do you guys think? I think what they went with with Return of the Jedi is the is the colour. They wanted to push the texture because there was no texture whatsoever in the in the Star Wars game. So they were going for a completely different feel. And I think they were trying to cash in on the cute little Ewoks. I know I know the icons on top of the speed of it. You couldn't really see them, but as a kid you knew they were Ewoks and you knew they were cuddly and. I think that's what they were pushing on that one. But I agree, flying the Falcon out of the Death Star after you, um, after you blew it up would have been fantastic as Vector. I'm not so sure about the speed of chase. I think probably that still would have looked a bit odd because it would, have, it would have been coming at you quite fast and all you would have seen were these Vector shapes and there wouldn't have been trees and there wouldn't have been logs swinging or anything like that at all. Okay, if it comes down to it then, which one was better, Vector Star Wars or Vector Empire Strikes Back? Rich? Oh, um, I'm going to say Vector Empire Strikes Back. Stu? <coughs> I am. Um, I didn't play him enough, Grant, to be able to give you a proper answer on that, mate. I would have to sort that out, mate. Oh, yeah, I'd like that. <laughs> uh, Star Strike. <laughs> the, 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 the original versions I really didn't play when they came onto the Spectrum and Commodore. <clears throat> it was Star Strike all the way, I'm afraid. It was a much better version. Uh, I don't know, I just... To me, uh, Star Wars, I still get goosebumps where you hear Obi-Wan tell you to use the Force just as you're about to fire those proton torpedoes. Um, the Empire Strikes Back arcade is actually a, a bit rarer than the Star Wars one because the Star Wars one was still doing so well in the arcades. People didn't think it was worth risking putting another console in there when the original one is doing so well. Now, there's, obviously, there's many, if you're going to start collecting these, there's many different versions that you can get because there were so many conversions onto the home computer systems, there is a, a slightly more difficult to find Bullmark uh, Trilogy 3 pack that went on the 8-bit eight computers. You know, it's not really that worth that much at all. Uh, what is worth money is the arcades, if you can get your hands on that. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any arcades for sale, but I've got to be honest with you, it's always been in my mind to have the sit-down Star Wars arcade as a holy grail for my collection. I would love it more than anything. Yeah, I promised you a story last week um, and I think Ben basically said my stories are rubbish but I do have a story and actually I know where the Star Wars arcade is Grant um, or certainly know where it, where it was um, so I'll come back to that in a second so anyway my story is about Return of the Jedi it was on the Atari ST it was on my friend's house and my friend had OCD and he had it quite badly but no, and it was so bad he, he actually calls it CDO because he doesn't like the fact that the letters OCD on in alphabetical order. And, but back then, nobody knew what OCD was. We just knew he was odd and everything had to be perfect. And, you know, we should take the mic out of him quite often. So he played Return of the Jedi quite a lot. It was his own machine. So got his name on the high score uh, table. And I think it had space for about 10 names. 
and he'd spent months and months and months getting rid of everybody's name who appeared on the high score. So I went around to his house one day and he was really, really proud and he showed us this um, this high score table and he said, you know, I've spent such a long time. So I said, well, can, can I play the game? And he was really confident. He said, yeah, go on. You'll never get your name on the high score. So anyway, I played the game and it was the first time for a good six months and I, and I came third. I came third on his high score table and he was, he was on the point of crying his eyes out because it now looked wrong. So he had his name first and second, mine third, and then the rest were his name. And going through his mind was, he now had to play that game for however long it was going to take to push my name back from being third on the list. He, he was really, really upset by it. Um, and, and I've still got a very, very vivid memory of that. Um, and going back onto the arcade, I think it was Empire Strikes Back arcade, I don't know if it's still there, but in 2000 and I'm going to say 2008, I was in Bulgaria, of all places, and I seen a small arcade place, and they had World Cup 1986 Carnival, very, very old uh, computer game, and I thought, my God, who, who's ever going to play World Cup 86? Uh, and just around the corner from that was the Empire Strikes Back arcade game in Bulgaria. So needless wow. to say, I spent, I spent quite a lot of, um, I think it's Lev in Bulgaria. So I spent quite a lot of Bulgarian Lev uh, playing that game. I've I got no idea how much that arcade game was worth. But uh, there, there's one in Bulgaria, or at least there was one. Anyway, moving on to 1987, Star Wars Fam makes a comeback, and this is in Japan on the Super Famicom. It was a, it's a side-scrolling platform game based mostly on A New Hope with some links to the other films. It has a, contains a black-haired Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, who is also a scorpion, and it was the first game where you, you start using the Force skills, and you know the first kind of game which tried to take on the entire movie as a, as a plot line. There's also first-person shooting parts for the vehicle levels, such as the X-Wing and the Millennium Falcon, and the game's also known for being really difficult. Um, what you can see here is the seeds of the Super Star Wars games on the Super Nintendos. And what do you guys think of this? Did you ever have a, ever play on the Super Famicom? Oh, sorry, on the Famicom? No, but I have played this game um, in the last few years on one of the online emulators. It's so Japanese, mind it. It's so Mario. It's it's bang on that time. But what a fantastic game! It's it's really good. It's really addictive. Even now, um, I can still play this game. Um, it, you're right there. It's it's the first game where you can actually be Luke Skywalker wielding his lightsaber and following at least a rough storyline. If this came out for the Spectrum in '83, I don't think I would have ever played another game. <laughs> I never really heard of it or played it. Uh, you yeah. can actually pick this up reasonably easy for, you know, a beta version for about £8 or a brand new version for about £35. And moving on to 1988, we had our first non-Star Wars movie game, which was Droids uh, by Mastronic, which is a platform game that came out on home computers. 
I have nothing to say about it. This is just looks absolutely awful. I tried playing it the other day and I couldn't be bothered. CCP and RTD2 have to crack puzzles to break out of the prison. Pete, please help me. I, I actually had this somewhere. I can't remember which. Uh, I'm assuming it must have been the Spectrum, but it was the worst game of all time. And it kind of summed up a lot of the budget range games that Mastertronic brought out. Because the control the control system was just incredibly awful. I think it was probably the only game I ever took back because it was so bad and got a refund. Because you didn't have a joystick. Well, you did have a joystick computer, but you didn't use the joystick. You had to use the use the keys to move to actually move around to where you had to hit a, a control. So you know, you have to move your cursor to the um, to the left button to go left, and move your cursor back to the right button to go right, and then all the time had to shoot. So the control the controls in it is just unbelievably bad. Uh, I, I think I'd ever played a game as bad as it because I mean it was. I mean, I remember the cartoon droids was on the, was on the TV, and it was like, oh well, maybe, maybe there's more Star Wars coming out. Let's buy everything Star Wars. But it was, uh, yeah, possibly it must be a contender for one of the worst control systems ever on a computer. It is. I mean, just watch the YouTube video. It sums it up beautifully how bad it is. Yeah, no, I I played it the other day for the first time. Uh, I've got a copy of it because you can pick them up for about a pound on eBay, but I just couldn't be bothered. Absolute rubbish. That brings the end of the 1980s for Star Wars gaming. We've only got a few more games to go through. Uh, 1991 and 1992, and we now see the introduction of the, the Nintendo Entertainment System with Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. Both of them are sideways scrollers on the uh, uh, Nintendo Entertainment System. The first one was also out on the Game Boy Master System and Game Gear. You could you also had vehicle segments in it. Uh, and you could also play different characters, which was quite unusual for the games that came out at that time. There was no 8-bit version of Return of the Jedi. And, you know, you can, what, 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 what did you guys think of these games? This was um, 1991 now, wasn't it? And there were a lot better games out at the time. Um, I thought the graphics were poor. It was very sluggish. Uh, it just didn't inspire us at all. It was it was very dark. Try to think of some games that were even around Captain America back at the time was up. Uh, not Captain, Captain Planet. Sorry, not Captain America. Captain Sonic Planet the Hedgehog. Was yeah, all those kind of games were so much better. And this was, I think, just another example of trying to cash in on Star Wars. A lot better than Droids. A lot better, but no, it it, it was appalling. And in 1991, if I had um, purchased this game, I think I might have done a pizza and took it straight back. Yeah, it doesn't look that good. It looks very similar as well to the Star Wars that came out on the Famcom. Uh, It's a shame we haven't got... I know the Nintendo Entertainment System was massive in America, so it's a shame we haven't got an American over here to talk to us about uh, what is the impact of these games. The final game I want to look at is Star Wars Attack on the Death Star for the PC in Japan. This game was released in 1991. I didn't even know it existed. And it was released on 16-bit Japanese microcomputers, called one called the NEC PC9801RX. What a fantastic name that is. And the Sharp X680000. Wonderful computer names these are, aren't they? These actually look a lot like the Atari arcade shooter. I think it's a rail shooter with maybe some kind of radar thing going on it. And it came on floppy disks. Like, and I'm not talking like PC floppy disks. I'm talking like BBC micro floppy disks. 
I, um, like I said, until I did some research on this, I never knew this game existed. I couldn't actually find anything for sale. What did you guys think? Again, it was it went back to the vector base games. It it actually I don't think it's too bad. It's a probably uh, probably came out about ten years too late. The whole idea of, of getting back into the cockpit, X wings, Tie Fighters. They've taken an idea that probably wasn't available as much in the Japanese market, and the and they've run with it. Did this coincide with any of the films being re-released? Just uh, 1991, I think. It's part of the dark times, to be honest, mate. Yeah? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I didn't I even know it existed until uh, really recently, and uh, I couldn't find any examples of any for sale. I wonder if Japan had some kind of resurgence um, back in the, the late 80s, early 90s, um, with merchandising, because it looks as though the have just looked at what was, you know, good in America at the time and thought, oh, we'll, we'll try that. But actually, no, it, it's it's not bad. It's not a bad game at all. It does look really close to the Atari uh, arcade game, then, doesn't it? Yes, very. But um, the, the the angles and the the camera angles, the the whole control system was pretty good. Target and computer was pretty accurate. But you know, for for 1991, you you probably expect better. I like it when it zooms out the cockpit when you've got a TIE fighter chasing you. And you have yeah, to sort, and you know. that's right. It flies right over. It comes right over the top of your, of your cockpit. That, that was uh, done quite well. To be honest with you, I was so desperate for Star Wars computer games that I would have loved it. Yeah. But, um, you know, and reading about the reviews, the reviews seem quite favourable about it. These um, Japanese microcomputer systems, they were so expensive. They were like $6,000 to buy at that time back in 91. So... I'm not surprised you couldn't find many of these games for sale. So anyway, this on reflection, uh, some hits and misses for this decade. Any favourites, guys? What do you reckon was the game for the first ten years? It will probably be the Star Wars arcade vector-based game because it, that that I think that's probably the only one that's went on to spawn a whole range of fantastic games. The other, the concepts from the other games were probably abandoned. Yeah. Oh, I don't know, you've got the Star Wars on the NES, uh, that definitely spawned the Super Star Wars games. Yeah, but we haven't got to that one yet, have we? No, no. I agree with Rich on this one, the uh, the original Star Wars arcade, particularly the sit-down machine, that yeah. to me was the one that I remember, of all of these, that's the only one I remember. The only one that I think today, if I saw the machine somewhere, I'd sit down and I'd probably sit there for an hour playing it again. Well, we'll have a look what this is like and uh, hopefully we can you know release a decent version of of this oddball section and if it is successful and if people do like it I wouldn't mind coming back next month and to to look at the next not quite 10 years but the run up to the Phantom Menace where we can look at you know still look at original trilogy computer games with the rise of things like Super Star Wars and and the rise of the PC in the 32-bit generation what we're also uh, thinking about doing as well especially if anyone out there knows, is we're going to start posting links on our Facebook page for some of the emulators that you can play, so you know you can check out some of these games, uh, such as World of Spectrum. It's one where you can play the old Spectrum games. And as I said before, you've also got uh, Atari Mania, which is another place where you can play these games. So hopefully next month we'll come back and do the... The next couple of years, if not, we're able to return to the Jedi belt buckles. So, enjoy.
This is the SWF UK podcast, brought to you in association with Star Wars Forum UK, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. There's been a few auctions doing the rounds, a couple were featured on the forum. One was the Keys auction in Deepest Darkest Suffolk, where I believe it was covered on the forum quite extensively, and there was there was a lot of carded stuff, but not carded with bubbles on it. Um, so there was loose figures with cut with a lot of cards. I believe uh, Dark Sith Lord and our friend Itifika Ian. Uh, in fact, I think Ian was actually photographed actually at the auction in the local newspaper, which is quite incredible, buying stuff. So, uh, But there, there, was, um, there wasn't a lot of value there. There was a lot of stuff that went for about 40 to £50, pounds, the other way up to about, I think the biggest thing was about £130 for uh, a bunch of stormtroopers with cards. So um, it's worth checking out on that, on that thread. I don't think you guys actually went for any on this auction at all, because it's a, bit, a little bit obscure, and it was more of a loose collection auction. Rich, did you ever go at this? No, I had a quick flick through, but um, I wasn't really interested in anything. Yeah, it was a lot of lot of loose stuff, really. Uh, there was a, a few die-cast stuff, again, with the cards, but not attached to the cards. So, um, I've got a value. Lacey Scott and Knight had some Cardiff figures. Again, nothing really amazing. Stuff went for about, yeah, Palatoy, some Palatoy stuff went for about 40 50 pounds. Nothing amazing. There was, however, again, nothing spectacular, but there was a, an auction house called 1818 Auctions, which I've never come across before. They're based in the Lake District, bizarre enough, and they actually had uh, a little series. And I, I thought I, I might throw this out to you guys, see if you can guess the value. And um, this was a bunch of Power of the Force last 17 figures. There was a Imperial Dignitary with a bit of a dot on his nose, a Yak face complete, a Man Man complete, A Wing pilot without his gun. Imperial Gunner and a Brada, and then there was a, like a token Stormtrooper. So, um, how much would you pay for those seven figures? Um, let's start with Ben. They were all accessory, were they? Apart from the A-wing pilot, he hasn't got anything. Um, I say three hundred pounds. Richard, I've just done some rough sums at one hundred and eighty-five pounds. The Welsh Wizard, two fifty. And Mr. Stew. I think you're very light there, Rich. I, I would have said nearer 300 as well. The thing you've yeah, got to remember is I like to overpay on everything, so don't follow me. <laughs> no, I think you're right, Ben. You're, you're talking 1, 120 for Yak on his own now, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. A storm is going for about 60 quid if they're um, complete. Just see, though, that Pete just said, um, how much would you like to pay? So I would like to pay. I'd like to pay oh, a tenner. Yeah, I'll pay a tenner as well. <laughs> I, 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 we're talking about low balls, so yeah. I'll give 12 quid. I sniped Stuart at the last minute. Remember, the, the Stormtrooper, I, I believe, actually, is a, a Luke Stormtrooper. All complete. Right, you've just thrown that one in now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change mine then to <laughs> £240. Well, considering you, you have to add in the uh, the auction price as well, which is around, I think it's around about 20%, which makes it quite considerable amounts, it actually went for £280 in the end, which I think was pr- actually pretty reasonable, to be honest, honest with you. I, and, and again, I would think that's probably a collector who's probably bought that rather than someone who's probably looking to make a lot of money out of it because it's not a great deal of value, I don't think, personally. And that seems, it seems to be the case. It seems to be a lot of these the, the loose lots are actually... You, you're not making a particular great deal on them, so I, it looks like collectors are going for this stuff. A bit of a shame, really, because uh, that, that, that was probably a lot I might have been tempted by. 
collective look of the last 17 figures. That, that's not a bad little bundle, but it seems to be getting harder and harder now to, to assemble the figures. I mean, I'm noticing, um, again, trying to finish off my, my uh, loose run, it is getting harder and harder. I mean, like, Baradas are going up to, I mean, they get to the 50, 60 pound mark now for complete. Imperial Gunners are, are really going over the, the, the threshold. The R2, I mean, I was bidding on one recently and that went up to £90 complete. And of course, I think, Richard, you've had a few problems with the lightsaber itself not finding a decent or non-repro version. Yeah, the Auto Saber is it's getting impossible to, to find one. And it's, it's getting along lines now where you're only going to buy one from somebody who you know. And there are so many repos out there. Fortunately, all the repos that I've had, I've never paid for any of them. So I'm not out of pocket, but it's just really, really annoying. But what's odd about the Auto Saber is the prices of the carded ones are still hanging around the £120 mark. So did you just say that a loose R2 went for about £100, Ben? Yeah, it was um, actually, it was a graded, AFA graded 85 loose R2 with a pop-up saver. Someone had for sale on the forum for £100. And unfortunately at the time, I didn't have a spare £100 because if I did... I think I'd have bought it and it would not be in the case anymore because it was lovely and white. The sticker was perfect and obviously the save is going to be authentic. Yeah, and I think you're a bit under with the mocks for 120. I th- they're creeping up to more sort of 140, 150 now for a R2 with a pop-up saver on a on a card. I've but- seen three for sale in the last month for 120 and I've even thought of purchasing one at 120 and then trading down to get a loose one. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't swap a mock auto saber directly for a loose one, and because I'm going to lose a bit of money on that. But I, I would trade down to to take a, a loose R2 and you know make up the the rest from other items. But I find that quite amazing, isn't it? That that's considering the the, the mock market that suddenly you're you're almost buying. Yeah, that there's not a massive price difference between a carded figure, which I would have thought would always be a premium item, compared to a loose figure, which you know, if you're looking for the parts, you know, like like the, the like saber itself, the price is really almost meet together. I think I looked at this before with with, with yak faces when the the card figure wasn't that far away from some of the ones that are going. I mean, the, you know, I mean now you're looking at over hundred pounds for a really really mint yak face, and the carded uh, versions aren't actually that far away. I mean, there must be like a a figure or a percentage that uh, you, you you can put the last seventeen in with. You know, percentage terms of how much a loose figure is in comparison to a carded figure, and it must be coming down quite a lot. Okay, the, uh, the, the big item I sort of found on eBay over the last month, and it's something which I really love showing to people when, when we get to talk about uh, Star Wars values, is the Uze, uh, and I call it Uze, Richard, I know you've got a different pronunciation, the, uh, the Blue Stars figure. This is absolutely an amazing amount of money for what is a bootleg toy. Of Star Wars, and it's the it's actually the other ones in the range that always make me laugh. The the, the Death Star Gunner with a calculator, carded figure, which always absolutely hilarious. But this was the the Blue Stars, and this went for just over five thousand dollars. And I I just don't understand. I cannot get my head around a bootleg toy being worth more than you know most of the really rare carded figures. Grant, you have everything else. Do you have anything bootleg that is of this standard? Only um, bootleg TIE fighter pilots, mate. Uh, bootlegs don't don't do it for me, unfortunately. That's one of the good things about having a focus is that you can sort of flirt with with these things and find out some information about them. But um, 
I'm Star Wars first and toys second, and these aren't uh, the bootlegs aren't in the film, so not that interested in them. But I know that there's a massive swathe of the community that love these kind of things, and I know that the uh, Uze uh, Blue Stars and a couple of the others are hyper rare, really difficult to find, difficult to find loose. So yeah, I, I expected uh, the Blue Stars to go for something like this. Rich, have you even thought about buying a bootleg figure? I mean, it's just something that doesn't appeal to me at all. It's it's something which was a fake, uh, what were the repro of the times as such, in various countries. I know they couldn't produce them, the, the official license figures, but I just don't know, it just has no appeal. I wouldn't pay $5,000 for a bootleg, would you? No, I wouldn't. Uh, I do understand why people are passionate about bootlegs. If If I was born in Turkey, and the only Star Wars items I could buy were the Uzai carded figures, then I would understand those Turkish people going mad to, to buy up their figures because that's their palatoy, that's all they had. I don't understand the North Americans, the Western Europeans, Australians, Japanese, etc., purchasing the, the Uzai and um, other items. I, I, I don't get that. But, Grant, I think I disagree. I don't think the Blue Stars is as rare as what people are making it out to be. Yes, this one on eBay that went for five grand, it's not really a lot of money for, for a fairly rare quarter figure. And perhaps this card back is, is where I, I don't know. I don't know a lot about them. But the actual loose Blue Stars figure, the No Any I was wearing, and I think it's their version of the Vital Keep Jawa, where they talked about being rare because everybody wants one. Everybody wants a blue looking Hoth Trooper figure because they're so unique. I think there are far more rare Uzai figures than this, which are much cheaper. There's the other one as well, which is like an Emperor's Royal Guard with the golden helmet. I think that's, that's the, the rarest of all of them. And then, is it the Headman or something like that? I'm not sure. Um, it's the Headman, Grant. It is, is it? Because even yeah. the shield and the and the staff or whatever weapon comes with it commands crazy prices. But I don't know, I, I should probably go because this isn't something I know much about, so I'm probably just going to reject. The Headman is super rare, and, and I think there are there were two known corded examples of the Headman. I was, but, but I was speaking to Jason Joyner. He he knew of somewhere where there was at least half a dozen of them, so there were probably more out there. The the Blue Stars figure is is much easier to get. It's just that it's commanding high prices, like a vinyl cave shower. Do you know what the the best thing to do is? Let's get a bootleg collector on here, and then they can tell us all about bootlegs, get us inspired and excited, and then we can all go out and spend loads of money on bootlegs. What I don't understand with bootlegs, and especially these ones, I mean, I, I mean, well, I think we, there were some Brazilian ones which are kind of like lead versions of the actual figures itself. But this, yeah. I, I just don't get because they're different colours, they're they're all over the place. You know, I mean, the, the cards are just have me in stitches. The uh, the Chewbacca one is just classic. Um, it just looks so moronic because it's just a figure in a picture. You know, and and some of the settings, like like I said, the Imperial Gunner with the calculator is is one of the funniest things. I, if I have any cheering up, I go and have a look at that and just laugh. But <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't actually mind having one. Yeah, but not a actual genuine one that costs a fortune, but just that as a piece just to to amuse me because they weren't in the films. The, there was no reference to Star Wars at all. I just don't. I, I don't personally understand what on earth anyone sees in this stuff. But I was staggered. So this went for five thousand dollars. You know, technically, what three and a half thousand pounds? Just amazing, absolutely amazing. Yeah, I was just going to say. I think a lot of the appeal of these to the collectors are the cards, which were obviously made by guys that were making the figures. So, the blue stars. When you have a look at it, you'll notice that it's standing in uh, sort of like a powdery substance that's supposed to be the surface of a planet. It's actually sherbet. 
um, they basically brought out of Sherbert and set the figures up, photographed them, just like they did the Imperial Gunner and the, the Calculator and the Stormtrooper, I think it is, that looks, it's on the most psychedelic card you'll ever see. It's like black and blue swirls behind the figure. And another thing that you notice about these uh, on the packaging, which is another curiosity, they've, well, they've taken names of characters or the film, for example, they've changed them slightly to try and get around the issues that may have cropped up with being sued and copyright. So you'll notice around the Uze logo, it says Stars War. So they've basically moved the S from the end of the wars to the beginning, to the end of Stars to make it slightly different. And so there's a C3PO figure that they made, which is C3 and things like that. So they just just change them ever so slightly to try and get around copyright that way by making the knockoffs. Have you ever seen one of these things in person? Not personally, no. I would like to see one because I want to see what sort of, what sort of quality it is. Because it's, I mean, again, another thing with, with, with bootleg figures is how how can anyone tell that it's, <laughs> it's a genuine bootleg as such? Because surely you can just reproduce these, or other people must have reproduced them at the time. So. I mean, it is a fascinating subject, actually, that, that does amuse me. Hopefully we, we can find an expert to do that. But a person, I've never seen one. Grant, have you ever seen any of these lying around? Uh, only at conventions, mate. It's not something I, I dwell on too much, to be honest with you. Um, as a completist, there's far too much Star Wars stuff for me to, to concentrate on as it is. So uh, not not going to throw another uh, fruit into my salad. Um, I was just going to say, actually, after that, if you do want to see uh, a something ouse dave tree has got one at the moment and it's usually on his stall at farthest from it's uh, an mtv7 so it's a mini rig but you can still have a look at the packaging it's got the instructions in it as well which are pretty basic as you can imagine and the actual it's an mtv7 mini rig the actual mini rig itself is well worth having a look at what they did when they actually made the mold for the vehicle is similar to the process that I described last last podcast when we were going on about the prototyping but instead of having a resin hard copy to make their mold they actually used a MTV7 so they got hold of a Kenner mini rig and used it as a template to cast the the steel mold that they then used to produce more um, I think that's the way that they did the figures as well and what you've ended up with, the actual mini-rig itself, the whole thing looks like it's melted and distorted because they couldn't get the steel mould right. And obviously every one that then comes after that has got the same imperfections and the same flaws. Next time you're at Farvis From, if Dave's still got it, he's uh, normally more than happy to let you have a look at it, and it's well worth, uh, well worth having a look at just from the point of view of what was going on with the bootlegs at the time. Yeah, that's not, that's not amazing. I mean, it'd be nice if anyone does actually have any bootlegs out there especially that these guys to, to maybe bring them along to uh, the next father's from I, I would actually love to see a genuine carded figure um didn't have to be that one but i, I mean i i, I think it's i think think um i'd love to see the range if anyone actually has the range of them be actually quite an interesting point to actually talk about this stuff i think there's only one complete mint on card figure run in the world for this and that's a guy in america um big bootleg collector the more Pete just talks about it, the more he seems to be getting into it. And I think we've got a new uh, bootleg focus collector. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have enough money for that. But um, I wouldn't mind a bootleg of the bootleg, just the you know, reproductions of them, because they are they are just, the card, the backs are beautiful things, because they're so bad. 
uh, yeah, the, the bubbles on these as well, Peter, hand glued, and they're really, really, really fragile as well, which is why mint on card examples are as rare as they are. Yeah, I can imagine that the, the process that they they would have used for these wouldn't have been the best thing. It's probably a bloke in the back room with a prit stick, I would imagine. Um, I doubt very much if they had a, a line of them going out anywhere. And um, if you've ever seen packaging, even even in the last twenty years in some countries, it's not the best. So I very much doubt if these had uh, any particular quality standards to them. Uh, so they certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have had a QC check anyway. There is a website after Grant's section of Oddballs, uh, which is really good. I, I've sold a lot of stuff to this guy in the past, old computer games. He's actually pretty reliable. I believe, um, Stu, you picked up some Mega Drive stuff from this guy, but he's a pretty reliable guy. He, he owns a lot of stuff. I've sold many Spectrum games. Commerce 64 games, me games to him over the past, and he is pretty good. Um, his website is www.retrogames.co.uk. He's based in Milton Keynes, and he will buy and sell. I mean, if you want to buy, sell some games to him, he can either give you like vouchers for his site to buy other stuff from. But uh, it's definitely worth checking out. It's actually on. There's quite a lot of the Star Wars games we discussed are actually on there. Not all of them, a few more the more recent ones. But uh, it, it is a good place to pick up consoles and stuff um, I'd go there and check any games out that, uh, that Grant has been advertising um, on, the, on this podcast right now I want to welcome back Tim for this month's rapid fire round. You ready, Tim? Uh, I'll try to be. <laughs> right, your favourite Star Wars movie? Uh, the Empire Strikes Back. Favourite Star Wars scene? Uh, the Cantina. Favourite on screen character? Han Solo. Favourite planet? Uh, Bespin. Favourite part of the prequels? Let's just say episode one. Optimistic or pessimistic about episode seven? Optimistic. Which actor or crew member would you most like to meet? Uh, Harrison Ford. Jedi or Sith? Jedi. Padme or Leia? Uh, Padme. Uh, who shot first, Han or Greedo? Han. Ewoks, love them or hate them? Love them. Favourite figure as a child? As a child, uh, Han Solo trench coat. And your favourite figure now? The Ugnaut. Which character do you wish they'd made a figure of? Um, the Rebel Fleet Trooper. Favourite toy vehicle or playset? A vintage cardboard Death Star. The vehicle or playset you wish they'd made? That's a hard one. A playset about uh, Jabba's Palace? Yep. Your favourite card back? That's a tough one as well. There are, well, there are so many cool card backs. That's a very tough one. Let's just go for the Ugnaught again. I really like that photo. Yeah. What was the last vintage Star Wars toy you purchased? Last weekend I purchased a loose Boba Fett and another loose... A loose Boba Fett and a loose Snow Trooper. <laughs> U-grading is... Not for me. Uh, good answer. And what is your Holy Grail item? Oh, my memory. <laughs> 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 Brilliant. That is a uh, that is it for them. Thank you very much. Okay.
Well, another show finished and fingers crossed, once edited, it'll actually be shorter than a baseball match this month. If you want to contact us, you can email us at swfukpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at swfukpodcast, or on Facebook, Star Wars Forum UK Podcast. And of course, don't forget to continue or start to get involved on the forum at www.starwarsforum.co.uk. All new members will be warmly welcomed. Huge thank you to Tim Vakoven. Great to have you on, and fingers crossed we may get to meet you in Belgium in the next few weeks. Don't forget, we appreciate all feedback, and if there is any topic you'd particularly like us to look into and discuss, then let us know. Also, remember to enter this month's competition. Look out for the thread on the forum. Finally, between now and the next podcast, our dear friend Ben's wife would have given birth to their baby daughter, Leia. Ben, I'm sure I'll speak for all the lads, that we hope everything goes smoothly, and both Leia are healthy and fine. So, all the best, pal. Best do your research for October's podcast sooner rather than leaving it towards the due date, pal. So, that is that. So, it's goodbye from Richard. See you guys. Goodbye from Pete. See ya. Goodbye from Grant. Thanks for listening. And goodbye from Ben. Auf Wiedersehen, Pet. And it's good night from me. And remember... Only you can decide with Star Wars toys. This podcast is not endorsed by Disney, Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or anybody who cares about the Star Wars franchise. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. All names and sounds of Star Wars are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited and other associated copyright holders. All the original content of this podcast are the intellectual property rights of Star Wars Forum UK. If you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to email swfukpodcast.com at gmail.com if you don't like this podcast tough are Star Wars products going to have the durability of say that old favourite the teddy bear teddy P, I'm not sure if you if you, if you noticed this as well one thing I did pick up on is uh, you didn't like the um, Star Wars games which is fine some of the Star Wars games but you also didn't like the bootlegs either it's more it's more interesting to get an opinion of why you don't like it yeah I mean, like, you know, I don't like bootleg stuff because it's just pointless. Well, no, I like the bootleg stuff, but I don't like the prices they go for. I just think that's pointless. I mean, anyone spends that sort of money is mad. It's not going to work. And I wasn't saying to be disingenuous. I was saying, uh, I'm saying you should like Star Wars more. <laughs>